0: The very, uh, a very major recurring segment of the show where Marco asks for CEOs to be fired. <laughs>
1: Should
0: have institutionalized this.
1: <laughs> it, it appears to me that the universal law of podcasting with John Syracuse is that on an infinite time scale, it all goes back to food.
0: Yeah. Why, why, why am I taking blame for this? Hang on a second. I'm, I'm not the food one. Marco's got a whole podcast where he talks about food and buys cans of Pringles and stuff. I'm, I'm not responsible for the food talk. I participate
1: in it, but I'm not why it's there. You're the common denominator between robot or not, and here. I'm not on top four, and they got food everywhere. They're making themselves sick with food. All the other people are also allowed to talk about food, but it seems that the trend line with the John Syracuse podcast is that you inevitably will talk about food. Mm,
0: I I do not accept this blame
2: slash credit any more than you two. I think it is equally <laughs> distributed.
1: Mm-hmm. Can I get an amen on this, Marco? I mean, come on.
2: Yeah, I, I would also say. Um, we got a lot of feedback about Italian desserts. Oh, that's true. None of which I think adequately defended them.
1: <laughs> oh, man. They, don't, they don't need
0: to be defended from you. You just might not like them. But I think the thing that needs to be defended is the idea that Italian is one of those cuisines that doesn't really have good desserts, which is kind of what your starting point was, which is ridiculous on its face. Whether or not you <laughs> like them or have been impressed with them or found good ones is different than like, because there are some cuisines that from an American perspective, you might say, not really known for their desserts. Like, you know chinese food as we know it not really known for the desserts
2: right italian is not one of those cuisines gotta say i had some italian desserts over the weekend at nice restaurants and they were fine (laughs) (laughs) exactly what i say about every italian dessert i that i have (sighs) this is fine (sighs) you you might you just might not like them except for the six that you
0: listed that you said were good they were all exceptions
1: you know what the problem is is that you just haven't been to a good italian restaurant (laughs) to have a dessert so here's here's the thing you really need to find yourself the nearest Olive Garden, you know, a really good Italian restaurant, and and try their desserts.
0: Well, I, I think Italian restaurants in the fake Italy in Las Vegas are not too far from Olive
2: Garden. <laughs> I think what we need to do is go to John Syracuse's places on Long Island and see if they're, a- see if they're actually that good. Pick me up something.
1: <laughs> no, you'd have to meet us there. That's uh, the worst.
2: This is starting to sound more complicated and not as good. <laughs> Because no, like John has named a spot that is good, so look, I'm nearby. I'll go there. You can come to come to Boston and go to Mike's. It's fine, uh, but you just might not like cannolis. That's
0: what the problem is.
2: Well, Okay, then. So if I if I go to whatever the place was that you gave me in uh, Smithtown or whatever Alpine in Smithtown, yeah. yeah. Um, if I go there, what should I get in addition to cannolis?
0: Ah, uh, I mean. I don't know. I can can tell you a cookie assortment to get. I like uh, a a couple of ones in particular. I like the little rainbow sandwich things, which, granted, look better than they taste, but I do like them. They're a sentimental favorite. We could do a whole top four episode on
2: it. So actually, Tiff's mom makes those really, really well. Mm -hmm. And the ones she makes, I love. I've never had any of those rainbow sandwich cookies from anywhere else that tasted like anything. Like hers are strong with flavor because she uses a lot of, um, I believe it's because she uses a lot of almond paste. So they, they really have a nice, dense almondy flavor. It's wonderful. Most of the ones I taste just taste like air. They just taste like nothing. Maybe they taste like the chocolate that's drizzled on, drizzled on the outside. but the, Or maybe they use too much jelly between the layers and it tastes too much like jelly. But like the actual like uh, sponge in it, the actual like, you know, cake part of it usually tastes like absolutely nothing you can mess those up for sure they're complicated but they're just
0: fun uh, i like the most of the cookies the varieties that look like sugar cookies dipped in chocolate with jam between them those can really be screwed up by having the ratio not right like if you have too little jam for too much cookie or the cookies are monstrous this is a problem like i mentioned that alpine yeah. their their cannolis had gotten bigger and i like the the smaller ones of my youth because i feel like you start to supersize everything mikes is the same way everything at mikes is supersized but whatever it's new england they don't really know what they're doing everything about them <laughs> is good tasting but everything is huge even actually uh tina brought back bagels from new york city and they were these giant monstrosities there's definitely a food size inflation epidemic going around um so (laughs) it's like apple's prices yeah that can affect that can affect cookies as well where they just the ratios just go off like you can't you can't have a cookie like that with the same thin smear of jam but two huge cookies and that gets to what you were talking about where it's just like dry sugary cookie thing but part, part of the whole thing kind of like getting uh you talked about this in your top four episode with uh like assorted chocolates Mm-hmm. any individual chocolate can be hit or miss but the the uh, excitement is in sort of the assortment that you have a whole bunch of different kinds of cookies maybe only one or two of each kind so there's a sort of uh you, you get a good feeling if you got one of the rainbow uh, cookies and there was only a couple of them there or you you did or you didn't get the one you want or there's such variety you don't know which one you want to take because they're all so different from each other as opposed to like a giant plate of all the same kind of cookies that's not the thing you're you're going for so there's that aspect of it as well and then all the things you listed before you said what well, tiramisu, biscotti your fruit tarts uh there's at least one other one uh that you said you like those are all uh pretty reliable
2: uh, almost anywhere all right so we're gonna go to you're gonna go to your place we're gonna order like one of everything and we're gonna get it home and when it's right i'm gonna be like this is fine and you're gonna be like well it was a bad day they, they it's never <laughs> what you really have to do is go there every day for 30 years and then that's really what it's about
0: no, I'm going to say you just don't like Italian desserts. It's okay for you not to like it. It's not okay for you to say Italian is one of those cuisines that doesn't really do good desserts. That's
2: not okay. I didn't say the desserts were bad. I said they're just like they're they're just average. They're just fine. Like they, I they and they disappoint me. It is not an ethnic cuisine with average desserts. Is it? Is it a cuisine
0: with above average desserts? That is my contention. I, I don't know that I agree to that. <laughs> Whether or not you like them, whatever.
1: So now that we've already covered follow up, even though this wasn't in the follow up <laughs> list,
2: if
0: you, want, uh, if you want to have a project, I'm I'm more invested in getting you into the ocean and not drowning you in the process than you going out to Smithtown and, and going to Alpine Bakery. Well, although if you're there, you should definitely go to my pizza place too. But that that I you know I don't, <laughs> I don't know if you've had good Sicilian, but you you'll be right there. You should just go to you should go to Branch as You'll be closer to there than Emilio's. Uh, just go there and get Sicilian with nothing on it. Wait, what about cheese? You know what I mean, like just so a plain just, cheese chili, just just yeah, yeah, like That's the regular, no, no toppings, no nothing.
1: Yep, John, John, what would it take for us to do a food tour of Long Island? Like <laughs>
0: my tour is like the three places I grew up near. Like I don't a care. Of a tour. <laughs> no, like with you, John,
2: like for you to come oh, with us.
1: Yeah, I will drive up or fly up or whatever, and and you will drive down, and we will all pile in Marco's one of marco's six teslas that he's paying for right now (laughs) and we will and we will go to long island and do a food tour what 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 is the kickstarter goal that we need to hit i
0: don't know i probably have to be unemployed so you just wait around for that i guess
1: well we're two-thirds there so it's all another time Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. we should probably get properly started at this point. Uh, and we have to do uh ISH corner, which I'm apparently making a thing. Uh, if you recall, ISH is a app that lets you run Linux on your iOS devices. And I'd been kind of updating everyone on the progress of, of ISH, specifically with the things I want to do on it, which is mostly YouTube DL and FFmpeg. There's been another release to TestFlight and FFmpeg kind of-ish occasionally works. And YouTube DL Also, generally speaking, works now, which is super cool. And YouTube download takes uh, forever and a day to get started. So if you try this at home, understand it will literally take about a minute to get going. But once it gets going, it downloads at reasonable speeds and everything's happy. Unless it needs to do something with FFmpeg on the other end. So as an example, (laughs) a lot of times, just hear me out here, a lot of times what will happen is when you download something, particularly from YouTube, it'll come in as a separate video and audio file, and then uh, YouTube DL will run FFmpeg behind the scenes in order to merge those together. And one of two things will happen in in that occurrence on ISH, either... FFmpeg will give a very peculiar error, which is unknown encoder called copy. So I can go into the the reasons why that would happen. I don't think it's terribly pertinent for the show. And, and if you do know the reasons why this happened, tell me why it's happening, please, because I don't understand how the copy encoder could be missing. But anyway, suffice to say, it will either die because of that or it will be so hilariously slow, which it makes perfect sense given how ISH works. I was literally watching the frame count rise. So usually, you know, it'll do like 30, 40, 50 frames a second. I was watching the frame count go frame one, frame two, frame three. Remind you, there's at least 24 frames per second. Frame four, frame five. It is hilariously slow. But again, I don't blame ISH for that. It perfectly makes sense given what's going on. But the whole reason I want this copy encoder issue fixed is because what FFmpeg can do is just kind of mash files together without re-encoding them. And that's what the copy encoder does. But for some reason, it's not working on ISH. And it's got to be something ISH related, although darned if I know why or what. So if you have any uh, thoughts on this, I'll put a link to the error message that I tweeted about a few days ago in the show notes. And additionally, the GitHub issue that friend of the show, Federico Vitt- Vittici opened, uh, and so you can t- check that out and perhaps provide feedback.
0: Can you remind us why you're doing this at all? Why you want to run uh, YouTube DL and FFmpeg on an x86 emulator on top of uh, <laughs> arm chip <trip> on iOS? <laughs> like, what is the uh, use case, as as they would say the, in your old life?
1: Yeah, sure. The The summary is I'm an idiot. The longer version is it would be <laughs> convenient to be able to like download a YouTube video, say, before I go on a plane or something like that. And yes, I know. I know. There are ways to do this, some of which involve money, some of which don't. I understand. But I'm used to using YouTube download to do these sorts of things. And it would be cool to be able to do that on my iPad.
0: Is that a premium feature? Because my kids do this. They download it, but it's because I pay for whatever the hell
1: weird...
2: YouTube Red or whatever it's called now. Google.
1: I believe it's a premium feature.
2: Yeah. If if you're a member of YouTube whatever premium, then you can download stuff offline in their app, but not on the Mac. You're not a member of YouTube or whatever premium. That's
1: Such a good branding. We don't know what the hell it is.
2: You're <laughs> I am a member of it, but I don't know what it's called. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, I am not a member of it. I don't watch that
0: much YouTube. You need to uh, eventually become a member of that. Otherwise, your children are going to like because like, I I bought it slightly too late in the life of my children and their YouTube exposure. So all of my kids know everything about Geico. Uh, if you want ah, to avoid right. that fate, <laughs> right? If you want to right. avoid that fate, sign up. Just before they start becoming tiny YouTube addicted little demons. Um, <laughs> because it is it is well worth it not to have your kids see YouTube as Then all you have to worry about is your kids becoming white supremacists. But that's it.
1: Oh, no big deal. No big deal. Um, yeah, so I, I I know there are other reasons to do this, but or other mechanisms by which to do this, but I, I, I would just like to. And sometimes, you know, I'll download a copy of, and it's not always YouTube, but usually YouTube, a copy of a video that I really love. Maybe that's a music video, maybe it's a concert, maybe it's an instructive video that I really, really love and I want to have locally just in case it gets pulled from YouTube sometime. And... I could absolutely SSH into my iMac to do this, and that's generally speaking what I do when I need to do this sort of thing. But I am trying to, I am going on this kind of, you know, spirit walk, vision quest, whatever the silly turn of phrase is, in, in order to try to eliminate needing a computer when I've decided to take my iPad and do something on my iPad. And this is one of the small but not infrequent stumbling blocks that I am running into. So I really think if if this ffmpeg issue gets fixed then generally speaking, you won't have to re-encode the thing that YouTube download downloads. And so because of that, I actually think even though it's in this like ridiculous you know, layer upon layer upon layer of emulation and, and virtualization and things of that nature, I, I really think it'll go pretty quick because there's no real computing to be done. You're just copying st- stuff from one file to another. But sitting here today, it is hilariously slow and it's understandable.
0: Plus, it's more about the ritual anyway, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. It, it makes <laughs> it feel better. It sounds better. It looks better when you have the... makes it warmer. It, it's warm, much warmer. <laughs>
0: Your iPad is definitely warmer. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a fact.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. Uh friend of the show, Andre, Andreas Netsman, was one of the first people to write in to point out to us, uh, with regard to humongous 8K screens... Well, what if they're not so humongous? Because Andreas pointed out that Apple could go to 3X scale. At the same UI size, a 3X 8K display would be just slightly larger than 27 inches. So if you think about how... Um, 2X or you know, what we currently consider retina is pixel doubled uh, off of you know, traditional resolutions that we've had for years. Well, if you pixel triple, if you will, that will pretty much put you at an 8K display that's something in the realm of like 27 to 30 inches. And so maybe that's why 8K is more interesting to us than we initially thought last episode.
0: That would definitely be more palatable. But the reason I think uh, 3X uh, is more suitable to handheld stuff is that just f- practically speaking, they're closer to your face. Um, I think three X would be lost on people's eyes at the distances that they view the from. It still means that you'd be able to watch your eight K video natively, which is an advantage, but I don't know if eight K on a 27 inch screen, like does anyone have the eagle eyes to, to distinguish that from two X on a 27, you know, put, put a two X and a three X 27 inch screen right next to each other and ask somebody at normal viewing distance to tell a difference. And if they can't, then you're just wasting money and it's not a great idea. Um, but if Apple made a, an 8K 27-inch, like I, I, think that is a reasonable size for the monitor. And if the price wasn't ridiculous, I would buy one. Even if I would, even if I thought it was, you know, wasting my money. Because honestly, I'd rather have a slightly wasteful, slightly more expensive 8K screen at 3X than
2: that LG thing that Marco hates. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and like, and I, you know, the, the the 3X theory is a nice theory. I don't buy it. You know, if you look at what devices have 3X now. It's only the iPhone 10 and uh, you know 10s and 10s Max. That's it. The previous um, Plus phones didn't even have 3x. They ha- they rendered the 3x um, in like in the buffer and like the, the software side, but then they they scaled it down to the actual screen pixels, so that it made it kind of like between two and three x. And then of course all the other iPhones are always two x. If you look at why they might have gone three x where they did, there's a lot of other factors. Like for instance phones are hyper-competitive and all the other phones went to nearly that you those densities or in, in those you know maybe a little bit past those densities so like but you know in in the ballpark of those densities so it it was hyper-competitive and everyone else was in this other region so apple maybe felt they had to meet that region the other big reason on the iphone 10 and why it wasn't Used on any other phone, including the iPhone XR, which is LCD, is that the X and XS and XS Max are OLED. And as I believe we talked about briefly a couple weeks ago, um, if you look at the sub of an OLED screen, every pixel doesn't have every color. Uh, and there's different arrangements. There's like the, the pen tile arrangement, and there's a bunch of other ones that phones have used over the years with OLED screens. And with the, the arrangement Apple uses, every pixel contains a green and either a blue or a red, but not all three. And so you, ha- you, you need like this little matrix of a certain block of pixels to be able to represent all colors nicely and sharply and everything else. So my theory is that they went to 3X on the iPhone X family only because it was OLED and they needed that density to make that subpixel pattern look up to their standards. If you look at other products in their line, as I said, like almost everything is 2X or um, slightly above 2X like, like the Plus phones or notably for this purpose slightly below 2X, like every MacBook and MacBook Pro that's gone Retina. Which is terrible. Yes, it is. All of them are below 2X. All of them run in scaling modes by default ever since about 2016 or so, uh, or in the case of the MacBook 2015. So basically, if your your MacBook has a USB-C port, it runs a scaling mode by default that runs at lower than 2X resolution because they have not changed the screen resolutions since 2012 when Retina happened. Uh, And that was actually a step back from what was there before. So anyway what really needs 2x resolution or 3x resolution rather like on the mac is you know not much we need we haven't even hit 2x on most macs sold yet because most macs are laptops and we can't even hit 2x there so i don't i don't see them going to 3x for a you know 27 to 30 inch display that sits two feet away from you that's i i don't i don't see that being a priority when they can't even get 2x in the laptops for four years or whatever
0: interestingly for televisions i believe most of the modern sets uh do rather than not having uh all of rgb on every pixel they have all every pixel has all of rgb plus a a dedicated white to to be able to crank up the brightness that they mix in there so obviously their pixels are huge compared to you know 3x on a phone or whatever but it just (laughs) this just goes to show that lots of different things are are possible depending on your use case and speaking of oled again i didn't even get an oled ipad this year i'm not holding my breath for an oled desktop screen but boy a a 2x, you know, 5k, IMAX size screen that was OLED would be pretty cool for watching movies and TV and stuff. Which you probably shouldn't be doing. You should probably be watching it on your actual television or on your OLED iPad. Uh, but it would be cool on a Mac too. I guess for the same price, you could get like a 60 inch OLED TV. Then. <laughs> yes, exa- exactly. Exactly. And you could sit farther back from it,
2: right? <laughs> on a couch instead of in a computer chair. And you can run WebOS. You can. We are sponsored this week by Fracture. Visit FractureMe.com slash ATP for a special discount in your first Fracture order. Almost everyone takes and shares pictures. But very few of those pictures anymore end up getting printed, and even fewer of them end up being on display anywhere. So this holiday season, give a gift or get a gift for yourself that means something by taking one of your photo memories. And sharing it with somebody else, or putting it on display in your house, Fracture lets you turn your pictures into meaningful, awesome-looking, modern-looking photo decor. So here's here's how this works: They print the photo directly onto a sheet of glass. Behind it goes a small piece of foam core that's bonded to it, so you can hang it. And then you can have this wonderful edge-to-edge. All you see from the front is the glass. This wonderful edge-to-edge print, and it looks modern. It fits in pretty much any decor. This holiday season, I'm actually giving. I got a huge fracture print the other day in the mail. I'm giving it as a gift to someone else. These make such wonderful gifts. I highly suggest that you consider these for your holiday shopping list. But these are handmade by people. And so they can get backed up sometimes in the holiday season. And you want to get those holiday orders in Today, because fracture prints make wonderful gifts, and you aren't the first people to learn that right this moment. People have known this for a little while, so get on board. Get your fracture prints in right now while you still can for the holiday season. If not, if you miss it, if you're hearing this afterwards, hey, you know what? You can get, get like a happy January present for somebody, or maybe a Valentine's Day present, whatever the case may be. But fracture prints are awesome. I highly recommend them. Go to fractureme.com/atp for a special discount on your first fracture order. They'll ask you what podcast cast sent you after checkout, make sure to tell them it's ATP. Once again, FractureMe.com slash ATP for a special discount on your first Fracture order. And hurry, 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 get those orders in for the holidays now. Thank you so much to Fracture for sponsoring our show and for decorating our house.
1: All right, so there were a bunch of people who... Took some issue with our price increase discussion from last week, and one of you thought that Stuart Lord's uh, feedback was worth noting. So Stuart points out that the iPad launched at five hundred dollars, and today the cheapest full size iPad starts at three hundred fifty bucks. The cost of the original iPhone over two years was eighteen hundred and fifteen dollars, depending on your plan, and you can get the ten R at considerably less than this. But even with the cheapest AT and T plan, it's still one thousand nine hundred ninety five dollars, almost the same as the $1,975 two-year cost of the iPhone 3G and over $200 less than the original iPhone adjusted for inflation. Similarly, the original MacBook Air started at $1,799. The new MacBook Air is starting at $1,199, and it's the cheapest new generation of MacBook Air has ever debuted. The difference is about $300, according to Stewart, adjusted for inflation.
0: Yeah, I was surprised there wasn't a lot of feedback like this, but there were some pushing back against the basic premise that Apple is increasing prices once you uh, account things. And so the example Stewart gave, I thought was interesting because they're all original products the original iphone what the ipad launched at the original macbook air and i think that's a pretty clear uh, exception for two reasons one when things originally launch sometimes they're pushing the envelope technologically speaking as the macbook the original macbook air was so there's a cost built in there to like look we you know this is the first unibody thing we're making it's the thinnest thing we've ever made it costs us a lot of money to make it we have to charge a lot uh, and second is new product lines when they're introduced like the ipad or the iphone are not yet diversified and so the first one tends to be more towards the high end. Once the line gets diversified, you know, the, the original iPhone compared for the iPhone XR, the iPhone XR is not the flagship phone, despite it being a really great phone. Uh, the XS is, and the XS Max are the flagship phones, right? Uh, and the iPad, uh, comparing the original iPad, you, that was the best iPad you could buy, period, for any amount of money. You'd have to compare it to an iPad Pro. I know it's not quite apples and oranges because the features have expanded, um, but still, When there is just the first one, it is necessarily expensive. And you would expect down the line that there would be a more expensive iPad and a cheaper iPad. So I don't think these comparisons are straightforward. And I think the the price increases it's it's hard to you know you can go through every single product and try to average it out and the interesting thing a couple people brought this up although they weren't really pressing against the conclusion that prices are increasing but if you go back far enough as we've pointed out on the show many times you go back far enough the cycles repeat right the the original you know no mac available today matches the cost of like the mac 2 fx which is like 16 grand in today's money or something like that for the base price uh max used to be much more expensive it's just that in the semi-recent history and in, 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 in living memory of the people who are on this podcast, uh, uh, even the young people, Ma- Max <laughs> are and Apple <laughs> on this podcast, <laughs> App- Apple's hardware, Apple's hardware was cheaper and has been cr- crawling up. The you know Apple, of course, also says that their average sell- selling price is increasing. That doesn't mean their hardware is becoming more expensive. They could just be selling more of the expensive models because they don't break it down uh, at that granularity, and they're not even going to tell us uh, the number of Unix sales anymore. But I think it is pretty clear that for the major product lines that Apple cares about, it's you know its portable devices, its Macs and its iPhones and iPads and everything like that, that over the past couple of years there has been a substantial price increase. And well, you know, the next item is also about things that might explain it.
1: Indeed, so Andy Hansen writes that Apple's pricing is high, no doubt. But eight weeks ago, I got called by two technology vendors telling me that OEMs are raising prices up to 25% in 2019. Because why? Uh, It's because of tariffs. And so uh, Andy says, I've been uh, in a purchasing role at my organization for almost nine years, and he has never before received a call like this. And uh, we'll also put a link in the show notes to a Washington Post article about um, tariffs and how they do or do not relate to Apple.
0: Yeah, so that's the interesting part. So, yes, tariffs are a thing, and vendors might have prices increases, and they pass that on to you. That's the way this works. Um, The Washington Post article is about how Tim Cook schmoozing, as presented in the article, but in general, tech industry lobbying has managed to exclude some of Apple's, uh, you know, flagship products from these tariffs. So while tariffs surely don't help the pricing of things, it's interesting that Apple has managed to carve out some exceptions for its most important products, uh, so they aren't as affected by tariffs. That's just the lovely, weird, corrupt system that we live in. Yeah, I don't want to go into the politics of it, but I want, I want to address tariffs because that, that that is potentially a factor. But I, I did think it was interesting that Apple, who is obviously philosophically and fundamentally opposed to everything the current uh, U.S. administration stands for, uh, is nevertheless doing what it takes to make sure it doesn't get hurt as much by this stuff as it could.
2: Oh, and it's doing what it takes to benefit from it as well. Don't forget those giant tax cuts, yay! That Tim Cook pushes for really aggressively. on oh, the repatriation of the uh, the foreign currency. Yep. yep, that too. Yep. Yeah, don't you know Apple. Apple plays it. They they definitely play both sides of the hand when they need to. When there is a lot of money on the table for them, they work with the administration.
1: Yep, very much so. Well,
0: although I do wonder what form working with might take because God, I don't. Can you only? Can you imagine? just I don't, I don't i don't want to get too political anyway i whatever they're doing they they're making it happen for them and they are getting uh
1: benefits they're getting some of the benefits they want indeed and then finally Uh, Jonathan Dietz writes in with regard to component costs, and his theory is that the number one factor is SD-RAM pricing, which is uh, currently at the center of a major price-fixing lawsuit. Instead of DDR4, SD-RAM prices falling by almost 50% between June 2016 and February 2018, as we would expect them to. They nearly quadrupled a 280% increase. The problem is exacerbated by the sheer amount of silicon Apple is putting into their products these days. And furthermore, all of Intel's prices have inched up because their transistors still cost as much as they did back in 2014 when they first moved to 14 nanometers. So in summary, particularly RAM, but even other things are still just expensive and in some cases are getting more expensive over time, which is unusual.
0: Yeah, so this is tariffs and component costs. The two things we briefly mentioned, but with some more concrete examples that surely are affecting Apple's prices. And yet I still say on top of all that, there is a conscious decision by Apple to charge more money for some of its products, sometimes because they're new like the iPhone 10, but then they kept that price increase when the XS came along uh, and sometimes because of component prices and foreign currency and everything. like that. But I don't think all of those factors combined uh, are enough to explain the across the board very large not just one or two percent price increases that are way like put, put it this way if if these trends continue they'll these things will cost as much as a car as a car in like you know 10 years which is obviously untenable so <laughs> it, I, I you know if i'm I am kind of surprised that in apple's earning calls and everything people don't ask about this because the, in fact they'd probably ask the opposite you know tell us what you're going to do to get more money from your customers like they, they want <laughs> they're not going to say why are your prices up there there is a different constituency on those earning calls but uh, a lot of the the other strain of feedback we got about pricing increases is from people saying, "Yeah, I usually buy Apple stuff, but I'm experiencing sticker shock. Right? That I'm they just kind of get accustomed to. Like Casey was saying, you know, buying an iPad for." Around five or six hundred bucks, and they go in to get what they think is the new iPad that is more or less equivalent to their current one, but maybe a little better. And it's just so much more expensive. Or same thing for the MacBook Air, which obviously suffers from being the low-end model. Now the new ones come out, and they are not nine ninety-nine anymore. And there aren't any nine ninety-nine models except for guess what—the same MacBook Air that you could have bought before with the USB A port on it and all that other stuff. So <laughs> I think uh, whether whether or not the price increase makes up for the customers who are priced out of the market we'll find out when apple does earnings but in the meantime some people are sad that they are if they're on the fringe of being priced out of the market for a particular product uh they might have got pushed over the edge and they just have to like wait another year and save their money
2: are you guys worried at all about like the i mean I, i don't we don't usually talk about like their the financial results and everything but like it does seem like you know sales are flattening uh in you know certain categories seem shaky uh the massive rise of prices has to have some effect to lower volumes uh and you know like, like you, the the iphone 10 seems okay but then you see like there the reports of like oh that the 10r seems to be doing horribly and maybe the whole s generation might not be doing very well and usually these reports are bs but this year it seems like maybe they might not be because there's more stuff going on like do you think that, it, 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 it seems very clear that, that the direction that Cook has decided to take the company recently is, you know, in in the absence of strong growth, they'll extract more money out of everybody, and that part of that is raising prices on all the products, part of that is, you know, services and stuff, but, like, just generally, like, a, a tightening uh, and, like, a, you know, tightening the screws and just extracting more and more out of everybody, but that obviously has a cost, and, you know, that cost is, you really alienating a lot of customers you 're losing some customers to some degree um, i don 't know what degree, but certainly you know some customers will just say no that's that 's more than I will take and i 'll go somewhere else. Do you think this is the right move long term or do you think this is maybe like the the wrong thing to do
1: I think it depends on who you 're asking right I mean obviously you 're asking the two of us but if you if you think of Apple as a machine to make money for the people that own even a portion of Apple, you know, for shareholders and everyone else, then I think this is an inevitability, right? They've painted themselves into a bit of a corner wherein they have made so much money and they have had so much growth that in order to keep that growth and in, in money machine uh, moving, they're, they're going to have to do exactly what you said, which is get more money out of each and every one of us. And it. It seems well, I, I could make an argument that, by virtue of them kind of twisting these screws, that implies that whatever is on the horizon, they don't think it's a brand new thing that's going to print them brand new money. Like, let's say, for the sake of discussion, that Project Titan, whether or not it was ever real, you know, but they they've come up with this Tesla beating electric car, and they know it's right around the corner. I wonder if they would maybe if they would be so aggressive about ratcheting up the money machine. Knowing full well that we 're all going to throw you know tens of or maybe even hundred thousand dollars at them for a you know a project Titan Tesla killer, but from a consumer perspective, which is what Apple claims to care about more than anything else, but in reality it 's a money machine like any other company, from a consumer perspective, yeah, this stinks, and I have heard since i 've become an apple fan, I have either been the one complaining or have heard complaining about how expensive Apple stuff is as compared to everything else and i think the problem might be twofold i think it, by virtue of increased complexity in everything i think that the easy answer to oh you know it costs so much more well yes but it also just works correctly and so i think there's we're we're losing that. I almost said high ground, so now I don't know where I'm going with this because <laughs> I know that's a loaded word now. But you know that we're losing that high ground in the sense that okay, yeah, yeah, I know you could get the same PC for half as much money, but but macOS always works and always works properly, and you never have to mess with it. Well, that isn't always the case anymore, and I think some of that's on it was on Apple's shoulders because I think they just aren't. Aren't doing as good a job with releasing, uh, you know, quality software as they did in years past. But I think some of that is just the the by virtue of being more complex. You know, everything is more complex now, and that's just hard. It's hard no matter who you are. Um, I forget what the other side of this coin was. I got myself uh, wrapped around the axle. But anyway, so what I'm trying to say is, uh, from a consumer perspective, you know, there's not as much of a functional high ground as there used to be, and the cost is getting ever more egregious. And the three of us are unlikely to break anytime soon but maybe less enthusiastic apple users might either hold on to their phones longer which just makes the problem worse or may say you know what android isn't looking nearly as offensive as it used to maybe i should uh, maybe i should take a look at that after all and it's just i i'm a little not worried, not scared, but I'm 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 giving a Stephen Colbert eyebrow to this. You know, I'm giving it a little bit of side eye because I'm not sure where this is going. And and somebody wrote in. I, I don't have the email in front of me, but somebody wrote in. Uh, actually, I think it was Matthew Iglesias um, had said. I'm pretty sure it was him. Had said, you know, hey, I am the the prototypical Apple purchaser, you know, much like the three of us, you know, I have typically have bought iPhones every year. I typically buy Apple watches fairly commonly. You know, I buy iPads frequently and he was saying, and I'm heavily paraphrasing, of course, I haven't really bought anything this year. And that's in no small part because it's just freaking expensive. And I mean, look at me, I want a 10 S, but eh, I don't know if I really want to drop, another $1,200 on top of the uh, iPad I've already purchased. I really want a uh, an Apple Watch Series 4, but, eh, you know, my Series 3 is fine. And in, and it was not long ago that I was on the upgrade my iPhone every year, come, you know, no matter what train. And just this year, I'm like, eh, hey, I'll be all right. Now, some of that is because, you know, I don't exactly have the disposable income, income I once had. But nevertheless, it's, it's changed the math a little bit for me.
0: The increases at the top end, are actually probably a good idea because I think the customers that purchase the high-end products like that they're, they're correctly guessing that increasing by the by this amount is not going to stop those people it's like is the, the game is like poker it's like how much more money do you have in your wallet and how much of that <laughs> would you be willing to put out for the latest iPhone and you, you know you, it's you don't want to guess too high but it's probably a safe bet that you can crank up the high end. Um, and on the Mac, which is, which uh, has, I would say less market share than the phone or certainly less important than the phone or certainly less important overall, but I think even less important within its market, within the market of personal computers than the phone is within the phone market. Um, maybe that's okay. But for the phone line, because it is such a dominant product, the numbers are so big. And despite the fact that it only has 20% market share or whatever, it still is a, is a bigger player in its market than the Mac is in the other ones. The phone has the potential to be, if not as mass market as the iPod was, then at least more mass market than the Mac It already is more mass market than Mac, but it could be more so. So I think the mistake is not so much raising the prices at the high end. It's raising the prices at the low end that the whole thing is shifting to the right on the, on the price graph. And that I think is leaving money on the table because I don't think the phone, I don't think Apple should be content to push its its main product upmarket and leave behind the, the people who can't afford $800 for a phone. Apple can, and I've always said this and I will continue to say, can make a really good phone for way less than they're currently selling a phone. They don't, but they could. And they may be afraid of the, uh, capitalizing their sort of middle of the road or high end sales, but I think it's... This move is just like make more money from the people who we're already selling to. Maybe leave a few behind but make up for it and profit. I think they can do that exact at exactly the same time as they say also introduce a, much of, a bunch of much lower cost phones to expand our market. They should be working to expand. They have diversified the iPhone line, which is great. But I always assumed when I talked about diversification I was calling for it back when they had one phone was that it would mean expansion to the high and low end. And they have expanded to the high end, low end, but then they've taken – the little popsicle stick that's that's attached to their entire market and just shifted it to the right. So they're expanding out from the popsicle stick both to the right and to the left, but the whole stick is moving to the right. I don't know, I'm imagining like some puppet show of Apple pricing or whatever. And I feel like <laughs> they need to they need to expand down market. If they're gonna shift to the right like that, Are they're gonna go higher end, they need to expand down market faster. So if there's any any turn of events that I think they should consider is and as much as it pains me to say it's not so much for the Mac, because I don't think you're gonna suddenly eat up all Windows PC market share any faster than you already are by going downscale on the Mac. Although there is there is, as they was say, a price umbrella there, where they, they probably should have a lower end Mac than they do that's decent. But on the phone in particular, I think they really need to not to not give up and say, well, we're a boutique phone maker and we don't really have they need to go down market with the phone because it's it's gonna start to be untenable if your cheapest phone of any reasonable quality that's not like a two-year-old model is you know 600 or 700 or 800
1: dollars is just too much i mean what do you think Are you pose the question where, where do you stand on this
2: i i'm worried uh, like you know it's it, it's always it's easy to miscall. apple is doomed you know like, it's easy to think apple's doing something really wrong in a big way and then you know most of the time that that doesn't pan out and they're doing fine and they're you know record profits and everything else But this is a pretty major shift over the last few years where, and I think, John, you have it right, like, it's fine to raise the bar on the high end to some degree. Not you know, obviously, to raise the ceiling of the high end, that's, you know, that's fine. You've always been able to buy a Mac for like $12,000 if you tried to. Um, To raise the entry point to the high end, I'm not entirely sure that's necessarily right. Um, Because... A lot because, like you know, high-end buyers are buyers too. High-end buyers have budgets too, and so if you say, like you know, I'm a high-end buyer because I buy the 15-inch laptop, right? Then if the 15-inch laptop starts way more expensive than it used to, that still affects you, and that can still lose customers. Um, So that's I I don't think the entry point to the high end needs to be pushed as high as it has been um, necessarily in, in most of the products. And I also agree that the low end. Seen is pretty much not there for most of the product lines. The the three twenty nine iPad I think is the major exception. Um, that's a, that that is a fantastic deal. Um, but with that sole exception, I don't think any of the low end entries in any of their major product lines are very good right now they're not they're not very competitively priced they're usually not very well spec'd um, like unless you like upgrade things like like the macbook air coming with you know 128 gig ssd is is inexcusable um the imac coming with a 5400 rpm spinning hard drive should be illegal uh and the there is no low-end iphone anymore (laughs) because they killed the se which itself was getting pretty old And the low-end iPhone is now $800 or whatever. So I I don't think they are addressing the low-end enough, as John said. And and I think it's almost as if Apple has totally stopped seeking market share entirely. It's almost as if they've decided, you know what? Our market share is as big as it's going to get in all these major areas. So we're just going to stop trying. And we're just going to crank up the prices on the people we already have. And that is usually a terrible business idea. That's usually only good, if anything, for short-term, like, you know, quarterly or annual earnings that usually in the long run really hurts a business. Now, I know Apple knows what it's doing more than I do in this case. There's a reason why I'm not the CEO of Apple. There's lots of reasons. But I, I don't think this is the right move to seemingly totally abandon market share growth and to only go for cranking up more profits from your existing customer base in a way that is actually costing you those customers also. Like, I I don't think they have struck the right balance here at all. I really don't. They are a mass-market brand, whether they think so or not, and they need to continue to appeal to the mass market as much as possible. It has taken them, like, a decade and a half to slowly almost lose the reputation that their products were way too needlessly expensive for everybody— and now they're just going right back to that. They're, they're just throwing away that goodwill and, and that reputation that they're like, they make really good stuff for the money. And a combination of extreme price hikes and major problems like the uh, MacBook Pro keyboard situation, uh, I think is throwing away a lot of their reputation and turning away a lot of their customers. And I, I, even if they can make more money from the high-end ones that stick around, that doesn't seem like the right move to me.
0: You mentioned the, uh, the $350 iPad, and I think that's a, a good example of, of how to frame this. So some people panic when they hear the idea of Apple going down market with any of its products. Uh, the $350 iPad is a great deal and a good product and proof that Apple can make a you know, product in its current line for a reasonable price that has a good set of features. It is not a cheap tablet. Cheap tablets are $99, right? We're, all, all we're talking about is going cheap down. Cheap
2: tablets are $30 now. Yeah,
0: going down market for Apple. It doesn't mean suddenly they're going to be selling things for bargain basement prices. It just <laughs> means that there will be a low end. I mean, the whole the whole the whole trick is, and again, the iPad is, iPod is a great example of this. The whole trick is to make products that are more affordable than your current products, but are also good Apple quality products. The iPods, I talked about this a lot on an upgrade uh, this week with Jason Snell, which is going to overlap with some of the other topics we talk about later, I'm sure too. So I'll just repeat repeat myself, but you can listen to that episode if you want to hear me drone on more about it. It was good, um, by the way. The, the iPod sold to everybody. Like the iPod was the probably the most mass market thing Apple has ever sold. Uh but none of the iPods were just garbage. Like they weren't uh you know poor quality or had bad sound or like were you know could only hold like 3 songs so they were useless. Like they were all good for the most part uh, except for maybe the buttonless shuffle. Uh but but even even the little <laughs> shuffles which Jason didn't like but I liked, like you can make a product that is not cheap for an mp3 player but cheap for an ipod so the ipad is not cheap for a tablet it's cheap for an ipad and inexpensive let's say but it's still a high quality product it's still like the the thing they do with the phones and what people are going to say is well they do have cheap phones they sell you last year's model or the the year before that or whatever but that is unsatisfying to everyone involved maybe it's satisfying for apple and they can keep those production lines going or whatever but it it is possible and apple should endeavor to do so to make a product with current technologies to hit a price point the 10r is is like that it just happens to be the more the less expensive version of their high-end product the 10r approach is a great example put in the same guts use a cheaper screen one camera instead of two you know a little bit thicker like as this is an analogy as the 10r is to the 10s so should be the insert product here to like the, the, you know, a, a bottom-end phone like the, the 8 or whatever. Like, make a variant of an inexpensive phone that doesn't feel like an inexpensive phone in the same way that the R is cheaper but doesn't feel cheaper. Uh, I feel like the last time I had this conversation, it was a surrounding, like, the before the 5C came out. And maybe Apple's a little bit uh, uh, shy about doing that because the 5C wasn't a big success. And also, I think, when they had uh, cheaper laptops, let's say... Uh, we'd always hear or surmise or be able to determine that the best selling Apple laptop is the least expensive one. And Apple probably didn't like that because they would like the numbers to be slightly different. You know, they don't want to sell tons and tons of the cheap one and very few of, of the expensive one. They would like to change those ratios. And one way you can change is to eliminate the cheap one and see how, you know, if people still buy Macs. And for the most part they do. And so you shift everybody up, but, but it's, it's unsatisfying. Um, so, Maybe they fear that in the phone, that if they introduced a phone that is too good and too cheap, uh, that it will just it, – it'll, it'll change things in ways that the people on those financial calls are upset about, but that Apple shouldn't be upset about, to Marco's <laughs> point. Apple shouldn't be upset about it, and customers wouldn't be upset about it, but everyone would be like, oh, your, your profit and revenue and ASPs for phone are going down uh, and we don't care that your unit sales went up because we've also decided kind of like marco was summarizing they might have decided we've also decided that apple your market share is never going to increase so if you tell me that your volumes are going down and that your asps are going down uh, and you don't show me a huge uh dramatic market share increase i'm gonna i'm gonna you know downgrade you and and uh your stock's gonna go down i don't care what the hell stock does like i you know i don't think anyone should care about that it's, it's not a video game it's about You know, the stock market is not the video game that I care about. It's about, uh, you know, making good products. That's what's what's brought Apple where it uh, is today. And uh, hopefully they'll concentrate on that as well. And uh, to Casey's point about uh, what their confidence and what the next big thing is. I think they continue to try to figure out what the next big thing is, whether it's the car or the air glasses or whatever. I think they're absolutely doing that. I don't know what their confidence level is or whatever, but they're doing that no matter what. That is definitely happening. It's just sure, hard sure. to do that. It's hard to do that. It's hard to know whether you have a hit, but they are absolutely doing that. In the meantime, though, they have to take care of their current businesses and, and treat them well and uh, do what's right. Oh, and I finally remembered my point from before that Marco edited out my, uh, my forgetting because he's a nice person. Another factor in the pricing is devices lasting longer, partially because the slowdown and eventual demise of Moore's law, partially because in the case of the max Intel specific woes about its 14 nanometer process not being changed over to 10 nanometer process. when devices last longer, people keep them longer, they buy new devices less frequently, which means in theory they have more time to save more money. but as far as Apple's concerned, it means that if you're buying less frequently, if we keep the prices the same, we make a lot less money. So, that I think is also an explanation. Apple being a victim of its own success, making iPads that last ridiculously long. Um, and new iPads not having this is probably not great for iPads because they do have dramatic changes. Let's say new Macs not being dramatically better than they were before means that people aren't as motivated to buy a new one, which means they'll just keep using their old MacBook for a long time. I saw someone tweet recently that they were using a 2013 MacBook Air and it was pretty much good at everything they wanted it to do. That is bad for Apple. They are a victim of the success of their own products. And, you know, partially Intel is to blame because computers aren't getting faster. Partially, you know, the, the slow demise of Mars law is, is to blame. But that's a fact of life. So that, that may be a thing that we have to consider is that it could be that if the, the pace of performance increase, the pace of things that are obviously make the products better. Oh, I can do my work in half the time. I'll definitely buy a new computer every, you know, one and a half years. As that slows down, we will all buy electronic things less often even casey even casey didn't buy a new 10s right we will buy things less often if we buy them less often to make the same money apple has to make them more expensive otherwise they're going to make less money and then there'll be a company in decline and this gets all back to the stock market video game again as i suppose
1: you know what it is is to me i feel like in the last six maybe 12 months a company that to me appeared to be almost wholly myopically motivated by building great products seems now to be more motivated than I'm comfortable with, with generating profits. And I know that some of that is my own, maybe not ignorance, but like wishful thinking, because again, this is a, it's a company, it's a money making machine. Their job is to make money. Now, the way that Apple chooses to make money is by by making cool things but ultimately their job is to make money. And so I don't think that anything has necessarily changed, but my perception of it has changed in the last six to 12 months. And I wonder if that's because even if the rank and file are still just as just as devoted to building great products as they've ever been, if not more so, it certainly seems from an outsider's point of view that the executive team, again, mostly Tim, but probably more than just Tim, but the entire executive team, I would guess, is more concerned with profits or more outwardly and obviously concerned with profits than they had appeared to me to be in the past. Does that make sense? Do you, do you guys feel the same way or am I crazy?
0: I think that's the one interpretation, but I think it's the, the more likely interpretation, especially considering the, the executive team who you all sort of know from a distance. Well, like there's not there's not like a, a brand new crop of people in there. It's kind of all the same people that we know. Even Tim Cook is not, you know, new Um, especially at this point is that I think all all those top people still are trying to make the best products they can make. It's just uh, kind of how we talked about, you know, Johnny Ives potential blind spots in his design, making the best products you can make is they're doing that, but they're ending up like they're ending up with more expensive products. And yes, more expensive products tend to be better. It's just, they're not correctly weighting uh, pricing in their, make the best product we can make because obviously they could make better of all their products if they made each one of them cost a million dollars right so they're not they're not that disconnected but they said like how can we the new MacBook Air is an example like they, they it's a much more expensive than the old one it's also much better than the old one part of what makes a good product though is how many people are potential customers for this so an example of how the MacBook air could have been, now there's lots of examples how it could have been our product but uh, let's take something like the ssd we're complaining <laughs> complaining about it being 128 gigabytes and it's too small it's like well you're saying they're too expensive you want to get a bigger ssd if for the macbook air if, if you know if, if that's going to be the sort of the lower end laptop compared to the uh, the non-wedge shaped ones one thing you can do is use a slower ssd that costs you less money so you can put a bigger one in uh uh, but I think the, the people there are like, let's make the best product we can. But let's not use a slower SSD. We know we have these super fast SSDs now. Let's use the fast one, and we'll just increase the price because that's a better product. And they obviously they are weighting the price into like what makes a great product, but they're not weighting it enough. They're not they're not thinking about like the, the products they they introduce. Like we're proud of this product. It's really good. It's high quality. It's high performance. Maybe they're not so proud of the keyboard anymore. But you know, everyone makes mistakes. Um, but like. <laughs> It's like yeah but but I can't afford that. I could afford the old MacBook Air. And the new one, yeah, it's it's way better. Sure, it's way better, but now I can't afford it anymore. So as good as as, as proud of this product you might be, you need to think more about great product that people <laughs> that more people can buy. Uh so I I think everyone is still correctly motivated to make It's kind of like when you when you have the ability to use the finest materials for everything, like when you're you say you're like a woodworker or something and for, you start off just using like, you know, basic oak and pine but then like you get good enough to the point where you can you can do justice to mahogany and you're like i'm making everything out of mahogany from now on it's like this is great this is so much better than the crappy oak thing i made you know two years ago and it is the mahogany is more finely crafted than the oak was but if you make everything out of mahogany you're like well it's a better product it's more weather resistance it's tougher it looks nicer it's just it's just nicer it's like yeah you you know we're just we don't care about money we're just making the best product we can make it's like you're but you're leaving people behind what good is your mahogany world if a few people can afford to buy it or, you know, doesn't fit into their life the way, you know, a lighter weight, uh, you know, <laughs> cheaper wood did. I don't know. They, I did a wood analogy instead of a car analogy. You should be proud of me for avoiding the car analogy, but I'm uh, <laughs> not, sure, not sure it makes that much sense. But anyway, yeah, I, I did long-winded way of saying that I still believe that everyone in, the, in senior leadership at Apple, uh, certainly, uh, you know, Maybe, Tim Cook is the one you could argue the most. is cares most about the numbers, but certainly the uh, the lieutenants that we all know really want to make the best products they can make. They are just uh, not giving enough uh, weight to pricing in their calculus, maybe.
2: We are sponsored this week by Molecule, a complete reinvention of the air purifier. Molecule replaces 50-year-old technology by destroying indoor air pollutants completely at a molecular level, completely removing them from the air you breathe. Molecule does this with PECO nanotechnology to eliminate allergens, mold, bacteria, viruses, and airborne chemicals like VOCs. This is a scientific breakthrough, and it's been extensively tested and verified by third parties. So, for instance, the uh, University of Minnesota Particle Calibration Laboratory tested and verified their claims, as did the University of South Florida Center for Biological Defense. It also makes a meaningful impact for asthma and allergy sufferers. They did a study of 49 sufferers at the American College of Asthma, Allergy and Immunology, and Molecule Technology provided dramatic, statistically significant sustained symptom reduction within a week of use. These results have transformed lifelong allergy and asthma sufferers' lives. This is really the real deal here. They sent me one. I've been using it now in our house for about six months now. It's really nice. It's a nice piece of technology. It's it looks kind of like a, a like a cylindrical Mac Pro of the old generation. So like it's like a tall aluminum cylinder. It seems really nice. And and if you are into air filters or want one, and we all know there's lots of reasons to have one these days. Uh, whether it's winter or simply you live in a polluted environment, there's lots of times to use an air purifier. So check out Molecule. It's spelled with a K instead of a C. So M O L E K U L E. So it's Molecule with a K dot com. Use code ATP at checkout and you can get $75 off your first order. Once again, Molecule with a K.com, code ATP to get $75 off your first order. Thank you to Molecule for sponsoring our show. So I, I took an airline flight this past weekend and I was juggling between my MacBook Pro and my iPad Pro. Because I I like parts of both devices on a plane. Like there that, there isn't just one of those that I definitely want. Um, uh, you know the MacBook Pro I had using YouTube DL. I had downloaded a whole bunch of YouTube videos to watch. Nice. I had downloaded a whole bunch of Seinfeld episodes to watch from the iTunes uh, from from iTunes. Um, and uh, and I, I had some uh, some like documents I could work on. I had email I could respond to real fast with the terrible keyboard if I wanted to. I had. Um, i had xcode i could work on overcast if i wanted to because i never really know what i'm going to be doing on a plane like ahead of time like i have some guesses but like i I always like to be prepared for whether i want to work or watch stuff or just you know geek around on twitter or whatever like i want to be able to do all whatever i whatever strikes my fancy at the time so i don't like to just only have an ipad because i can't do some of those things with that um but i do like having the ipad because i can do some of those things if i want to with that anyway so there i was you know alternating different points in the flight between this almost $3,000 laptop and this like $1,200 iPad. And then I looked, there was a guy across the across the aisle from me who had whatever kind of surface is like the iPad Pro, where it has like the tablet with like the keyboard case that can be detached and the pen, like that kind, not the laptop kind of surface, like the, the tablet kind of surface. At different points in the flight, this guy using this one device Used pretty much every mode you could use on it. It looked like a Microsoft commercial. Like he started it out, it, like in like you know keyboard laptop mode, and he was working on like you know some office documents or spreadsheets. Yeah, I, I couldn't see much, um but like he was working on like documents with a keyboard. Then at some point, he detaches it and uses a pen, like the the, the Surface Pen, whatever it is, and is like marking up a document, like in tablet mode, for a while, for like a couple hours. Then he. Redox it and watches a movie on it. Here I am juggling these two devices, both of which I think are more expensive than that one device he was using. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, there were so many years, really like the, the really good period of, of Macs and of Apple stuff in general, where like we could look at the PC people and we could kind of laugh at them and kind of feel superior. Like, look at the crazy things you're doing over there in PC land. It's so much nicer over here. We have things really figured out and at this flight, when I'm watching this guy use one device for everything, correct, like, and, and yeah, I know it is, I know it's still Windows, I know it isn't the best tablet OS or the best desktop OS, but like, to, to see him using one device for everything this was like the dream this is the dream that we keep wanting in apple land and it seems like it's never going to actually happen it seems like you know (laughs) they keep trying to convince us that this shouldn't happen i think they're wrong uh but like it just seems like there's this impossible dream in apple land that we're never going to get there whereas like in you know microsoft world they're there now like and i i was really hard for me to see that and to not feel like the roles have reversed here and to not feel like we are now the ones who are behind in in this pretty big way. Vatichu doesn't feel that way.
0: He's just got the iPad. You're the one <laughs> juggling two devices. Like, I mean, Apple would argue that you can do all those things that you're doing on the Surface just on your iPad, and it's probably true. It's just that you don't want to do certain things on your iPad. You feel like they're you're more efficient and they're better to be done on your Mac. And I agree with you. I'm I'm in your camp. Um, I I think. Using that hybrid solution, like it lives and dies in the details. Uh, I I personally would probably be more comfortable using a fancy iPad Pro as my only thing than trying to do the same stuff in the Surface for the same reason that you would, because we're all familiar with iOS applications so much more than we are Windows, especially how Windows behaves on a weird tablety thing. But Microsoft is certainly in uh, a better place in the abstract, if not in the concrete details of what they're doing, and that they don't have. Uh, two different operating systems, albeit built on the same base, with two very different UIs. They have this weird hybrid thing that sounds better, uh, but I think in practice has has a few problems. But I see where you're coming from, especially with the pricing, where you know juggling two more expensive devices. For, I mean, would you feel better if you were Vitici and you were you just had one device that was twice as expensive or three times as expensive, and you were both just sitting there using tablets and folding it into different origami shapes and using the pencil and swiping all over the screen because. I mean that's that's the apple of today do the same thing as people with non-apple
2: devices at twice to three times the cost but it's also better see in that moment i didn't feel like it was better and in that moment as i'm juggling two devices with two batteries and it's and like two purchases i had to make two devices i have to keep updated yeah, like, that's because you're using two
0: devices but pretend you're just using your ipad
2: yeah i mean that that would be fine i could just use my ipad but then i couldn't do a lot of things that i want to do so like it's it's hard for like until the ipad sorry i should say until and unless the ipad gets the ability to do everything i want to do then i'm gonna have this this problem like ultimately what i what i decided afterwards is next trip i don't think i'm gonna bring my ipad which i know is the opposite of what i said literally here a week ago but like (laughs) if i have to just pick one like cause bringing two was so cumbersome, mm-hmm. so heavy, so expensive, so clunky, it's, and it's like it, it was just a pain. And if I'm only going to have one, I want the one that can do an okay job at everything, instead of a better job at a smaller number of things. And that's kind of a metaphor for this whole Windows divide. Like the the Windows world makes devices that, yeah, they're not as good as Macs at as be, at being laptops. And they're not as good. Well, except for the keyboards, and they're not as good as iPads as being at being tablets. But you do get one device that can do all the things, and that has value, even if it isn't as good. And this is why, like, I, I wish Apple would kind of suck up their pride a little bit in this area and be willing to make some compromises in the like, you know, the kind of like no touching zone they have right now between the Mac and the iPad. Like th- this divide is hurting customers pretty badly at this point, and it's making them look ancient compared to the rest of the technology industry.
0: Have you considered suffering from motion sickness to the point where you can't look at screens on the plane, thus solving this problem entirely?
2: (laughs) That
1: sounds like an excellent solution. I'm
0: not saying I I recommend it, but I am saying that it will
2: eliminate this problem. I mean, that's probably easier than an Apple making a Touch Mac.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think the The problem is is it appears to me that Apple is working towards an aspirational future, and Microsoft is doing what they can to embrace reality today and and that is the reality of today is that we don't have xcode on. The iPad, and not to say that that's the only thing that that requires you to bring a computer, but I, I think it's safe to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that's a big reason you brought your computer is so that yep. if you decide to work on Overcast or any other sort of coding exercise, then you need a computer to do it. You can't really do that on the iPad, and so I think Apple's working toward this aspirational future where, of course, you would have two devices, Marco. Why wouldn't you? And you know the, where you would just use the device that's best suited for the particular thing you're trying to accomplish whereas by comparison Microsoft is just saying hey look there are times that you're going to want a tablety thing there are times you're going to want a computery thing and we will try our best to embrace all of those times with one device and i think as you had alluded to earlier you know there's a lot of compromises there but certainly i think all three of us can understand the appeal And what I wonder is, let's suppose in this, you know, completely fantasy future that you had a completely workable, even if it looks very different than today, but a completely workable version of Xcode that you could use on the iPad. Like if you could have coded overcast things on the iPad, would that have been sufficient? And again, assuming that you wouldn't have to give up on all the things that we all know you would have to give up on in this fantasy world, would that have been enough? probably
2: yeah like i mean there are certain things i still like the mac better for you know things like the file management and the hacks like of, course, DL of and course. everything that actually mm-hmm. run at full speed and and you know things like that even uh, just you know the ergonomics of it like part of what we did on the plane was i set up my laptop between the two seats like leaning on the armrest and we watched seinfeld together with a headphone splitter cable with our two you know, Bluetooth expensive headphones, because as far as I know, there is no way for two people with Bluetooth headphones to split a signal and listen to the same thing at the same time wirelessly. Correct me if I'm wrong. But anyway, so we we had to, you know, go back to the hundred year old technology of the headphone splitter cable. And as I was doing that, I'm like, first of all, this is wonderful because like, you know, we can plug this into a headphone jack, <laughs> which was nice. Um, and second of all, uh, we could adjust the screen to any angle, which you can do with a laptop and you can't do with an iPad. I realized, like, this is actually the better device for what I'm doing right now. But I still missed some of the things about the iPad. So, like, this is why, like, I I think this is just going to be a really annoying, uh, unresolved conflict that we're just going to have, that we have had for a while now, and that we're just going to have for the foreseeable future of, like, Some people can use just laptops, some people can use just iPads, but probably more people fall somewhere in the middle where neither device solves all of their ideal scenarios and needs, and they either have to have both, which is cumbersome and very expensive, or just pick one or the other, which in that case usually the laptop would win, and then miss out on all the stuff the other thing could have gotten them. Whereas people in Windows land don't seem like they have this problem. They have other problems, but they don't seem like they have this one.
1: Well, that's the, that's the thing, right, is that there are compromises across the board. I would argue, and maybe not everyone would, but I would argue that Windows is a compromise. for us. <laughs> that's being generous. Having two, well, fair. Uh, for us, having two different devices is a compromise. But there's compromises everywhere, and... I hope that that sometime sooner rather than later we reach this utopia wherein there are fewer compromises and maybe just an iPad would be enough. And this, I, th- I feel like we're channeling our inner Steve Trout and Smith in talking about this because he's been banging this drum a long time. That really, th- this this artificial separation between these two platforms. Is entirely that it's artificial, and there's no reason that we could, we can't or shouldn't have a touch version of macOS. And yes, I can rattle off a thousand reasons why not. But I mean, if you just take the theory for a second, uh, you know, there's no reason we can't have a touch version of macOS, and there's no reason we can't, you know, do iOSy things uh, on the Mac or vice versa. And and I understand now more than ever what you're saying, Marco, and what Steve has been saying for a long time.
0: So uh, one of the first articles I wrote for MacWorld magazine back when they were actually a paper magazine, uh, I think it was like after was after WWDC, and uh, I was mostly uh, sad that there weren't more Mac announcements. This was uh, around the time of Lion, I think, ten uh, seven. Uh, the two things I asked for in the space constrained constrained old world of paper, like I didn't have enough room to be, you know, my normal verbose self. One was the modern file system, and I got that one. Hey, one for me um only took uh, eight years uh, and the other one was uh the, the heading title at least is a touchscreen screen mac and what i described there was like my attempt back in 2010 to uh to rationalize like the the state of the state of affairs with apple's OS's with what exactly what marco described the need to do those two kinds of things but not to have two devices so the state of affairs was this ios which is a touch thing and the ipad you know was a thing right uh, and you've got the Mac being the Mac. Uh, and what I describe is a product that I think I say at the end that, like, Apple's obviously never going to make this, but uh, I'm trying to address a problem. Like, can you make uh, the Mac operating system touch savvy? Yeah, eventually. But right now, it isn't. So your solution can't be, oh, uh, just make a Mac, but then have it have a touch screen because that doesn't solve anything. And it also doesn't solve the thing like, well, what about when I want to use it as a tablet? So what I describe is basically a laptop that can fold back on itself, and the... The 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 weird the weird thing I'm proposing as a way to take the pieces that are that were available at the time and make something somewhat rational is that when you use it like a Mac laptop, it works like a Mac laptop. When you fold it back onto itself into tablet mode, it it works like an iPad, as in it runs iOS, right? So it's a, it's a single machine that basically is Marco's laptop with a real hinge and everything running macOS and also is his iPad with iOS, right? That's, you know, obviously Apple's not going to make something like that, this weird Frankenstein two operating systems at once. But what I was getting at with the description of this product is that at the time, 2010, it's still mostly true today, what they've got are two operating systems that, that work well in two different contexts. And I think both of them work better in their context than a hybrid solution of sort of smushing them together does because iOS is great for touch better than macOS ever would be but it's never going to match the functionality of the Mac if they stay in their separate camps and 8 years later they're still kind of in their in their own separate lanes so we're not really any closer to a solution they're in theory coming towards each other with marzipan they're you know there's they're crossing over the bridge but it's more like they're they're across a canyon throwing boulders at each other but they're not really coming <laughs> together right um, and so one solution that, okay, if you, if you can't come together, then fine. I will literally have Marco's Marco's single device where you're an iPad, you're a laptop. You're an iPad, you're a laptop. And yeah, they're totally different. It's like, well, what? The, it's like a totally different device. When I fold it over, I don't even see my Mac stuff. I just see, my, yeah, because that's what Apple's got now. They've got an operating system that works great for touch and one that works great on laptops and none that works great on both. Uh, so yeah, again, I, I just, this was one of the stranger articles I wrote because I described this thing and say, this is not something Apple can or should or would ever make. But you know, if I had more words and more time, I would have said, what I'm doing is highlighting the problem that Apple faces. This is the thing people want to do. They don't want to do it with the compromise that is Windows, right? And certainly Mac users don't. But they do want to use a tablet and use a laptop and have each one be good at what they do. And eight years later, Apple is only a little bit closer. Depends on who you are. Again, that's why I mentioned Vitici. some people have gone all in on the iPad and they use it for all their work and they're very happy people and they're much less grouchy, grouchy than we are, although they're grouchy about uh, they're still grouchy about the slow progress of the iPad. But I don't see them slinging uh, their laptop and an iPad back and forth on a single flight to to do what market was doing. So we are because we have old habits, or because we have needs that are not just not met. You know, again, Xcode that's just a need that's just not met. Period. Uh, regardless of how well I bet, we are not served by this, uh, by, by what Apple offers quite yet. And I, you know, I don't want to turn this into another Mars Band conversation, but for all our discussions of that, I feel like that is one of the biggest steps Apple has taken in the direction of crossing this divide. So at the very least, they're hurling much larger, spikier boulders across the divide, and maybe they'll end up forming some kind of land bridge from the dead bodies that accumulate. <laughs> the dead bodies of Mars Band apps that accumulate, and maybe someday people will be able to uh, walk across and populate North America. God, this analogy got away from me. <laughs>
1: Oh man. Yeah, it's it's an interesting point, Marco, and, and I hadn't really thought of it that way until you brought it up. But yeah, you pretty much did witness a Microsoft commercial. <laughs>
2: We are brought to you this week by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com/atp and enter offer code ATP at checkout to get ten percent off. Squarespace makes it super easy to make an awesome website for your next idea, whether it's a blog, a content site, a portfolio, or something more complex like a store for selling digital or physical goods, or a podcast, even. You can host all of that and so much more with a Squarespace site. And your site can look professionally designed regardless of your skill level. You don't need to be a web programmer. You don't need to be hacking around in template files or anything. Squarespace's templates are all awesomely made by awesome designers, and they're easy to edit because it's all visual. You can drag and drop. It's all what you see is what you get. You get live previews if you want to change colors or fonts or anything else. It's super easy to use. It's all very intuitive, very simple. If you need any help, they have award-winning 24-7 support, but honestly you probably won't because it's super easy. You can see for yourself with Squarespace's free trial with no credit card required. See for yourself. Next time you want to make a website for your next job, your next portfolio, your Next project, your next hobby, whatever it is, make it on Squarespace. Give it a shot because it's free to try with no credit card required. So they're not, not going to bill you if you forget to cancel or anything. No risk to you. Super easy to see for yourself. Go to squarespacecom ATP to start that free trial today and use code ATP to get 10% off your first purchase. Make your next move with a unique domain and a beautiful
1: website from Squarespace. Uh, starting off, Ask ATP, Matt Christensen writes, I just watched a video about Indianness, which I'll explain momentarily, and my mind is still reeling that all systems aren't the same. As I was grappling with it, I thought, I bet Syracuse has interesting, entertaining, or strong opinions on this. So, um, John, would you like to explain Indianness or would you like me to fumble through an explanation and then I would like to hear your opinions about this?
0: I would like you to explain it because I always I can never remember which is which. Right. So I hope you do, and are referencing something that will tell you which <laughs> let's,
1: is. Which. Let's see how I do. So, if you have a series of, uh, if you have a number stored in binary, so it's nothing but ones and zeros, you have to choose if the the position that that indicates a whole lot is at the front or the back. So if you think about binary, it's one, then two, then four, then eight, then you know sixteen, thirty-two, etc. So I just did little Indian. I said one, two, four, eight, sixteen. Big Indian is the reverse. It, the very first digit would be sixteen, then eight, then four, then two, then one. And the key is is that either one of these is pretty much equally acceptable, but you have to agree on which one you're going to use. And within an individual system that's not very difficult generally speaking, but if you're communicating to other systems, those systems need to agree that we are going to go all in on either big endian 8421 or little endian 1248. So, assuming that description was mostly okay, John, what are your thoughts on this?
0: I think the one piece uh, from that explanation that's missing, and why we have to pick an order like this at all, has to do, and we'll link to like Wikipedia page, which will do a better job than we will explain this, hopefully. But uh, that what we're talking about is storing numbers in memory, and memory is uh, is addressable, but it's not addressable at the bit level. It's addressable in chunks, usually at the byte level. Uh, so if you have a number that is bigger than a byte, a byte is you know only eight bits, it only goes up to two fifty five, right? If you have a number like five thousand. And you have to put it somewhere in memory and memory addresses are are by bytes you can't pick an address and say oh it's going to go in address two it's like well it can't fit there the address two is just a byte long and you've got this number five thousand that's it's too big it doesn't fit in a byte so how are you going to take that number five thousand and break it up into pieces and like casey said okay well you can take you know, take the number into two pieces and put the first piece in one address, but then where do you put the second piece? Do you put the second piece in the address that is one more than that address, or the address that it's one less? Uh, and you know, so, Matt asks if I have a strong opinion on this. Um, the interesting thing about endianness is if you are if you have a computer science background or end up working on hardware or anything, where endianness where you have to be aware of the endianness, like if you work in assembler or you know you do anything sort of low level like that. Both arrangements make sense depending on your point of view and depending on what you consider. Like, it's not like GIF or JIF where there's one obvious answer. It's GIF. Uh, GIF. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, but for Endy <laughs> in this, depending on how you look at it, you can make strong arguments for both arrangements. And depending on what you're doing, say you're writing, uh, you know, you're writing assembly. One arrangement may seem so much more natural than the other, but then when you're writing C, the other arrangement will seem so much more natural. And then when you're writing your own, making your own CPU out of gates and some logic program, then the other arrangement seems like there is no strong right answer. Which is why we have chips going in multiple different directions. And in fact, PowerPC could switch endianness, which is really cool. PowerPC was great architecture, uh, thwarted by some bad business arrangements. But anyway, um, yeah. So no, no one is more right than the other. The the choice is mostly arbitrary. Uh, If you always comment it from a particular perspective, I can see having a strong opinion that one way is the obvious right way. But I I have at various times in my life been convinced that either Big Indian or Little Indian is the obvious right way. And now I recognize that it
2: really just depends on your perspective and it's mostly arbitrary.
1: Marco, any other thoughts on this?
2: Uh, from, from a hardware point of view, I can see the argument of like, well, it doesn't matter. They both have pluses and minuses. Uh, once you're above that though, in like regular languages and you're dealing with bytes and if you, especially if you need to do any, um, bitwise operations on numbers and everything, um, Anything other than big endian is a pain in the butt. Uh, big endian is how people would assume things would be arranged in memory. Like you know, like the when, when humans have numbers and you, you move on to multiple digits, the largest digit goes on the left, and the smaller digits go on the right. And that conceptually, big endian is the computer version of that. Like that's that's how you would expect things to work. And so, if you have to do any operations on binary data. Um, that's how you expect it to work by default. And in fact, I, I think computing history has proven out that that, that big endian is kind of like the, the better or proper way to do it. Uh, Little endian has pretty much only been used by Intel in, in the mass market in like, you know, recent modern computer history. Um, and, There's a reason why nothing else uses it by default, because it isn't the best way to do it. (laughs) It's, you know, so despite what John said, trying to defend them both, I fall hard on the Big Endian side. There's a reason why every modern architecture either only is Big Endian or is Big Endian by default. And there's a reason why almost every binary file format specifies that it must be written in Big Endian. But if you're working at a lower level, and obviously you're coming at, it at a higher level, and as time goes on, more and more
0: people are working at a higher level. But if you work at a lower level, sometimes Little Indian makes the most sense because of the way, you know, it, because you're not dealing with like, oh, I'm dealing with numbers. Like you're dealing with values and addresses and having the addresses go from like, you know, the addresses go up as you go farther is you go bigger in the number right so the smallest part is in the first address then you get bigger and bigger and bigger and the bigger you number, the number you get the more that that value extends into memory starting from the address that you specified it can make more sense in that context but it, 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 that's that's what i'm saying at various times in life both have made sense i suppose the trend towards higher levels of abstraction means that uh, maybe big ending starts to, to uh, dominate and make the most sense but there are there's more complications like in terms of how, how the numbers are actually stored, whether they're stored in two com- two's complement or whatever in, in binary. like You're at such a high level that you're not even... like It seems to make more sense, basically, where you can find the address of the number and how it's sort of arrayed. But if, if you get down to the actual values stored in memory, they're not what you're seeing in your high-level language either. So I feel like at, at the point where you're not really connected to what's going on, you don't care what the abstraction is. You just want to you know dump out your values in your symbolic debugger and see the numbers get printed. You know, and for bitwise operations and stuff like the libraries are taking care of that for you anyway.
1: All right. David Beck writes, I often hear you guys talk about how much better a real camera is than an iPhone, but I can't get my 10-year-old DSLR to take anything as good as my iPhone. Do I need a newer, ca- newer camera? How do I even start to learn to use a real camera properly? Uh, I... kind of wonder about this uh, especially when it comes to low light photography because i don't have one of those super fancy pants sony cameras like marco and uh and stephen hackett do but for my eyes i don't think that even the fake bokeh of portrait mode has come anywhere close to as good as a real camera with real glass and my camera is, a, and I actually just upgraded my body to the more, more recent version of the one I already had. I have an Olympus OM-D E-M10 Mark III, which is a micro four thirds camera, which means it's not physically that terribly large, but it you know has interchangeable lenses, so on and so forth. The camera body, I just paid 500 bucks for, and I'm using four-year-old lenses that are like, each of them was between 500 bucks and 1,000 bucks. So this is not a small sum of money by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, I I spent around, you could spend around a thousand bucks and get a really, really good picture from this camera without too much effort. And I don't remember if it was Marco or, or maybe Tiff, actually, or uh, Sean Blanc, who recommended this whole setup to me initially. But one of you guys said, uh, shoot in aperture priority. So that's where you, where you tell the camera how wide open you want the aperture to be. And then it takes care of the rest. The shutter speed, the you know, ISO, and all, all the other paraphernalia that, that, that needs to be decided. And that's still, to this day, four years on, mostly what I do. And granted, I'm not a great photographer, but I can take some pretty darn good pictures. And to my eye, they are clearly better than my iPhone. And so that is my short short version of, yes, I real th- I do think big cameras are better, and here's how you do it. Uh, I, would, I would like to save Marco for last, because I think you have probably the most thoughts and most useful uh, help. So John, what do you think about this?
0: Practically speaking, if you don't look too close to the pictures uh, and you're not going for something that the iPhone can't do, it is possible that the iPhone is taking sort of bitter, just random snapshots of things because of all the computational photography stuff that it's doing where it's just processing your picture to get something that overall looks uh, nice to you. But... There are so many things that a phone camera just can't do because the sensor is too small and the glass is too small. All those effects that are being simulated on the phone, you can get for real on your camera. Uh, maybe if you don't notice a difference, it doesn't mean it's not there, uh, but maybe that just means you don't care about that difference. You, you should be able to get with a real camera with a big sensor photos with real blur, uh, shallower depth of the field. They should be sharper in the detail area and there should be less noise. And they should also be able to shoot in lower light. Now, you know, the, the pixel things with that night sight thing where it's, it's super amazingly used computational photography to take pictures that can practically see at night. To do that, if you look, zoom in on those pictures, that the computational photography isn't, isn't perfect. Like, it's noisy. It's strange. There are some artifacts here or there. If you're far enough away from the picture, you don't care. It just looks amazing. Uh, but again as in the case with the simulated uh depth of field stuff a real camera with a big sensor and big glass can do that for real and it is just uh, i i feel like so much better than the simulated thing in the same way that actually having a big sensor that gathers tons of light because it's just it's really big right takes better low light photographs than a tiny sensor plus a really complicated cpu to get the same you know salvage the same amount of light from the photo especially if something is moving for example because there's only so much the phone camera with this tiny sensor can do computationally if something is fast moving in dim lighting uh so i'm not sure exactly what camera uh this person has but it you should be able to there, there are things you can do with the real camera that you just can't do with an iphone just because for physics reasons if you don't care about that as anything ditch the thing and just take it with the phone but if you do care you will you will definitely be able to take better pictures with your real camera all
1: right marco teach us
2: honestly you guys covered it pretty well already um the you know there's there's a lot of advantages to iphone photography and to modern smartphone photography that real cameras you know quote real cameras um either can't catch up with haven't caught up with or probably will never catch up with and that you know it's mostly in just the sheer processing power, like the smartness of them, and also there's a lot of, lots of like convenience reasons behind them. You know, like the fact that you can take a picture and immediately send it to somebody or post it to a social thing or whatever. You know, that's that's a level of convenience that you just can't get uh, with regular cameras, no matter how many weird little Wi-Fi features that you tack into them. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of convenience uh, attributes, but even just from like a photo quality perspective, using the algorithms and using the smarts of Modern, you know, phone technology and and machine learning and everything else—things that other cameras probably won't get, uh, or at least won't be able to catch up with or keep up with—allows you to, if you have good input conditions, and if what you want is fairly, you know, mainstream needs. So, you know, your iPhone only has two lenses at most, and you know, and if so, if you need like a different focal length, a different perspective, more reach you know you're kind of out of luck uh, unless you go into like you know weird attachments and everything but like you're you're pretty much out of luck there um you know but if you, if what you need is mainstream and if you're somewhere that has pretty good light and you know has pretty good conditions and your subject isn't moving too fast and you don't need to print it at like some massive size then your iPhone is going to be just fine where other cameras can really excel is if those conditions aren't met if you don't have a ton of light if you don't want the exact same 1 to 2 perspectives that the phone can offer you if you need different optical characteristics if you you know just different composition styles different creative creativity styles if you need high resolution if you need really good performance and low light like all those things are are things that that the phone cameras can attempt to use some of their smarts to overcome their limitations but tend to not do very well or at least it tends to just not be the same. And so there's always gonna be room for dedicated cameras to use both physics and to use their their like versatility and customizability to their advantage in, in areas that smartphones just can't. And also just cost, like, you know, a smartphone camera has to cost something like, you know, forty or fifty bucks, I think, at most, for that module. Whereas a standalone camera can cost like three thousand dollars and the glass in front of it can cost another three thousand dollars, like it's kind of crazy how, you know, but like, there are just certain things with physics and economics and, and practicality that the phones just can't do. No matter how good they get, they just can't do. They, what, they, what they do is increasingly good enough for increasingly more and more situations. But there's still going to be things they can't do. Now, if you're not getting good results on your big camera, and you are getting good results on your phone. That could be, you know, I mean, if you go old enough, you know, he said a 10-year-old DSLR, if you go old enough, then yeah, you are going to start to see like, you know, things like noise and things have gotten better. Um, But there's a lot of attributes of successful photo taking that don't have to do with the hardware necessarily, or at least directly. Um, A lot of times it's just about like settings. It's about technique. It's about, uh, you know, just technical aspects like was the picture properly focused? Were you actually focused on what you want it to be? Or were you focused on like someone's ear instead of their eye or whatever, like, you know, or was the subject moving fast enough such that, uh, your, you know, one, two hundredth shutter speed wasn't actually fast enough to capture their emotion very well, or it got a little bit blurry or they or it focused on where they were. Then they moved and you took the picture and, you know, like they moved between when it focused and when the shutter fired or whatever. Uh, or, you know, are you, are you cranking up an old sensor to uh to a noise level that it's not very good at in order to you know use the light you have with the speed you need <laughs> you know, like there's there's all sorts of like technical considerations here and this is why like one of the reasons why i love my sony and i, I went through this whole thing when i when i briefly went to the canon and then came back to the sony and i went through this whole thing here about like the sony allows me a really high hit rate and that's because of a few technical factors it's because it has a really good autofocus engine it has in-body stabilization, so basically it's always stabilized so I can take slower shots. Or with faster motion, I can crank up the ISO so that it takes really, really fast speeds, even in low light. And then I can freeze motion better and keep that in focus. And so like, the, like there's, there's technical attributes of it that make the shots better or worse or increase your hit rate more or less. Whereas the iPhone, your hit rate can be way higher, even though it's it's much more limited Because the iPhone is way smarter about things like focus and cranking up the ISO to whatever the heck it needs to be to get you the shot, even if your your resulting picture ends up being like a real watercolor blurry mess.
0: So to give some uh, examples, like, so you don't have to get that esoteric where phone cameras are just not good. And I see it all the time, Uh, you know, involved. If you have kids in school, sometimes your kids in an assembly, sometimes they're playing in the band, sometimes they're on a sporting field. and, And, you know, if in those situations where you, i'm, I'm uh, surrounded by a bunch of other parents you see them all take out their phones you see them all hold up their phones and try to get the shot there whether they're taking video or still images the shot of their kid up on the stage the shot of their kid playing in the soccer game or whatever and you get nothing like the kids are just too far away and too fast moving or too dim light. like you can't take a picture of your kid on the soccer field with your phone even in 2x mode they just look like a speck right you can't get a decent picture of your kid up there playing their musical instrument unless you're in the front row. Uh, Otherwise you just get the whole stage and you have to circle their tiny little blurry head because it's dim and everything is noisy. And and yet everyone is there holding their phone ups, hoping against hope that they're going to pay. even something as simple as your kids walking down the aisle for graduation, right? Graduation from elementary school. All the parents have their phones out there. They're They're like within touching distance of their kid. Their kid is walking by them, walking down the aisle. Surely this is ideal for your phone to get a good picture, But because the lights were dim because the slideshow was on and because the kids are walking sometimes a little bit too quickly, everybody's blurry and noisy. Uh, And even like, you know, the the pixel night vision thing is not going to save you from that. These are not strange scenarios you won't find yourself in. If you have kids in school, you will want to take pictures of them at assemblies graduating and in sporting events. And you basically need a camera to get pictures that anyone is going to see and go, oh, that's a good picture. Or even be able to recognize or find your child. Because they're just zoomed out too far and the sensors are just too small. And so it kind of pains me to see everybody holding up their phones trying to get pictures. Because I know none of those pictures are coming out. And I do it myself sometimes. sometimes I, don't, I don't have my big camera because it's a hassle to carry around with you. All I have is my phone and I give it a try. And that, that's why we get excited about things like uh, the 10s with all its like HDR stuff. Or get excited about the, the, the Google's night vision thing. Because it lets people get something salvageable from situations where previously you got nothing. Uh, But still, there's a huge gap, especially when your kids are far away. So big cameras are a pain in the butt, but they definitely have their
1: uses. Finally, Brent Trout writes, What are the highest value food items measured in quality versus effort? For instance, you mentioned canned cranberries for Thanksgiving. Or the tubes of Toll House cookies aren't the greatest, but they're so easy to make. So... I will amend this slightly, which will not satisfy Mr. Syracuse. But I will say something that you get at a restaurant doesn't count. So, like, just going to a restaurant is obviously the easiest way to get a great amount of or a a really great tasting dish for sometimes not a lot of money. So, leaving aside restaurants, something that you can do at home. John, do you need any other clarifications, or are you capable of answering this question?
0: What What is your interpretation of? highest value food item measured in quality versus effort. Like it's the effort, the effort we're talking about is the effort that it would require for you to prepare it. Cause we're eliminating restaurants. Right. So it's like, you, you right. have to prepare this. Right. Uh, so it's like, it takes the, the, ideal one would be like, it takes, either, has no preparation or very little preparation and it's really, really good. So that's what we're looking for. Right.
1: Exactly, so the cranberries, I'm not personally a fan of this, but you just open the can, you let it you know drop onto the plate and you have a, <laughs> arguably a delicious cranberry thing mm-hmm. that you've taken virtually no time to prepare.
2: Does does nutrition count here? Because like no, like ice cream would be an obvious one, right? Like you open up the tub and you eat ice cream, and it's really good. Mm-hmm. You don't even need a bowl; you just need a spoon. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: That actually is a very good answer, and and I would say that nutrition does not count. So uh, I was having trouble coming up with some of these, although I was the one who put this in the show notes. Uh, there were two op- uh, two answers that uh, someone dear to my heart, but I don't want to name him or her lest they get uh, all the crap that I usually get. Um, but anyways. Uh, Aaron said, the latkes from Trader Joe's, which I think are delicious, and uh, it's Hanukkah time, and so uh, Aaron made uh, latkes and matzo ball soup on Monday, which was delicious, and Trader Joe's has frozen latkes that I think are excellent, and they have the advantage of not making your house smell like uh, fried potato after having cooked them if you cook them from scratch. So that was one answer.
0: That's not an advantage. That's a disadvantage. I love that smell.
1: Oh, but it never (laughs) leaves. The problem is it never leaves. But good. Yeah, uh, I don't.
2: I don't like when the smell of cooking lasts longer than the meal does. Thank you. Like, I, I don't want to like I be like going that. to bed at eleven o'clock at night still smelling what I cooked, you know, four hours ago.
1: Uh, notable exception: bacon. But otherwise, I agree <laughs> with you. Uh, and then I will read what Aaron said as uh, verbatim. The well, have we? We've talked about this, right? Is do you pronounce it manicotti or manigot?
2: I avoid saying it so I avoid, so I avoid the issue because no, no one in my family can agree on what the correct pronunciation is and I don't want to embarrass myself.
1: Hmm.
2: See also the cheese and lasagna that begins with an R.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Aaron said the manicotti from Costco, although then she, I add, she adds... Though maybe you don't want to say that one with John listening, which I think was very <laughs> astute of her. I was going
0: to say, based on your Thanksgiving dinner, your your uh, family's uh, uh, the, the effort required to prepare all your family's favorites seems very low. <laughs>
1: that is true. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, stovetop. Actually, stovetop. I know you're going to chew me out for this, but that's a good one as well. Uh, and finally, the, uh, I think it's also Trader Joe's makes some really good uh, bean burritos that you just pop in the microwave from the freezer that I also think are, are quite, quite tasty. So those are my uh, admittedly terrible answers uh john i would like to save you for last marco other than ice cream which i think was a great answer any thoughts here beer and nuts Uh, uh, nuts uh, uh, i i see i i I feel like i if i'm gonna let ice cream be okay nuts should be okay as well i guess yeah especially if they're roasted all right all right i've convinced myself that's allowable
2: what's which nuts though nuts is a big category um well let's see if we're if we're doing low effort See, I, normally I would have put pistachios pretty high, but you do have to bust them out of the shells.
1: Oh, but that's so part of the fun, though.
2: Then in that case, I would put cashews slightly past them. So cashews, are, cashews, I think are my number one nut, roasted and salted, but not too salted. Like so, my favorite cashew vendor, which is nuts.com, dot um, they have a fifty percent less salt cashew option, and that's my favorite one. How do you feel? How do you feel about macadamias? Before we move on from nuts, they're good. They're they're not like my favorites, but I I like them. They're fine.
1: I can't even picture them. I've heard of them a million times. I'm <laughs> sure is, I've had them in is the past. This not surprise me.
2: It's the nut that's always <laughs> in the white chocolate cookies at fast food
0: places. It's the, it, the, here's how you can tell an academia nuts. When you buy a, a mixed nut thing, it's the nut that you cannot find because there's three of them in the whole container. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> so we almost never buy a mixed nut thing. You would know, typically buy pistachios for sure and occasionally uh, just peanuts. Fair enough. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page. I'm sure I've had these in the past, but I don't remember what they taste I mean, you like. You've
2: never had a white chocolate macadamia nut cookie at like Subway or anything?
1: I'm sure again, I'm sure I have. If but. you've
2: ever had a white chocolate chip cookie at from from like a fast food thing, yeah, yeah. yeah it yeah. most yeah. likely had macadamia nuts in the in there too. And they're 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 good. I find their texture more interesting than their flavor. Like they they when you bite them, they they kind of fall apart like in like a shale kind of feel. Like it's really mm-hmm, weird, mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's a very pleasant crunch that they have.
1: All right, John. Best uh, quality versus effort.
0: So I think uh, Marco's ice cream thing was a good pick because that is a very high quality item. But I, when I'm I was thinking about this, uh, I was thinking more in terms of. Uh, I don't know. This is going to sound pretentious and obnoxious, so I'll, I'll go with my slightly less pretentious, and I'll go into the more pretentious one after. Me. <laughs> my, my initial, my initial instinct was uh, Parmesan cheese, Parmigiano Reggiano. Oh, okay. You don't have to do anything except for grate it. And it is amazing. Like I feel like it is, it is. It really, it really, you know, highest value for for lowest. Whatever has very high value. It really elevates anything that it's in. It is so much better than the the uh, sort of weird uh, imitation versions that most people have in America. And price is not a factor, so don't have to worry about that. But even more in that, you know, you could say like this is not a processed food. It is it's, it's, cheese is a processed food. If you want to go into like not processed an ice cream to that degree you know also um really high value this is situational right uh in the middle of summer or whenever like strawberries are in season just a strawberry by itself a really good strawberry tremendous value uh no effort you just put it in your mouth and eat it uh that that's what i'm thinking of so it's it's either a parmesan cheese or really really good strawberry
1: that was pretentious
0: Yeah, because we're like, oh, just a strawberry by itself.
2: Get a British (laughs) accent. I mean, relative to our meals, I mean, like, I had beer, nuts, and and ice cream, and you had a microwave burrito. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah, I feel feel like, Casey, you were thinking of, like, what's a thing I can buy in a store that is a finished meal that I can eat that's pretty good? And I was thinking, what is a... What is a food product, or even like what you would consider an ingredient that just by itself, without you doing anything to it, don't cut it, don't slice it, it is just like it's it's just amazing. parmesan gets in there because it is it is a processed thing, and you do have to somehow grate it or take pieces off of it and put it into your thing. But it is really one of my
2: favorite foods. I think out out of our three picks here, I would wager that most people would be happiest having mine. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I would agree. Uh, absolutely, uh, you're, you're putting
0: alcohol to uh, you know get them dazed so they can uh, deal with uh, a bunch of locality nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get really good nuts, <laughs> ice cream. The ice cream everyone would probably be happiest with, but uh, I think people would be unwise to pass up my idealized strawberry because an amazing strawberry, not just like a just a random strawberry, random strawberry is like meh, you know, whatever. But an amazing strawberry is a thing to behold, and you can get those other things anytime. If I if I gave the choice of beer, nuts, a bunch of things wrapped in plastic that Casey likes or the world, uh, <laughs> ice cream. Or like, Don't forget ice cream. The, the, or ice cream or th- the amazing perfect in-season strawberry. You should go for the strawberry cuz other things will still be there when you're done, but when are you going to get a chance to this perfect strawberry?
2: I'd take the handful of cashews every time.
1: Let me give you a, let me give you another answer. Uh, I think That one could find a reasonable interpretation of your pie of choice. Now, I know that I am deeply of the belief that Aaron makes a tremendous apple pie. I I know that, Marco, you believe that Tiff makes a tremendous apple pie. I'm not here to argue who does better or what. So, obviously, we agree that homemade is better. I'm I'm not trying to argue that. But... I feel like you can get a reasonable interpretation of an apple pie from a store, which involves zero effort as opposed to the entire effort of creating an apple pie, which, even if you're buying a crust, is not insignificant. So I think, and maybe apple isn't your particular pie of choice, but I think pie is also pretty good on this list.
0: Yeah. Store bought apple pie is good, but it is
2: not as good as like pretty much any homemade
1: apple Mm pie.
0: Yeah.
2: Agreed. I I don't think like store bought baked goods are. I don't think very high on this list at all. It okay, can still be good. A- apple pie has the best
0: chance of being good because it's, it's harder to screw up. But you don't eat it. You're never confused that you're eating a homemade pie. Like oh, totally. You could do a blind mm-hmm. taste test of homemade versus store bought pie. You get it in a set. You get it by smell. The store ones just they they feel like they're made of wax.
2: Like they're just. <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, and, and I, like uh, speaking of places that I love to get food from Long Island, Brian Mayer Pies out east on Long Island. Like that's technically a store bought pie, but they're all basically. Homemade pies, like so, I, I feel like it's a different category. So, Briarberry pies are like my favorite pies in the entire world. Although I still think I could, obviously, I could pick out a Briarberry pie. Like, it doesn't taste exactly like a homemade pie. In many cases, it's better. Like, I've never had a homemade blueberry pie that's as good as mirror quote unquote, store bought. But they're all both very different than like entamins or something in the supermarket.
1: What are you saying? Is it Briarberry? Briarberry. Yeah. Okay. I those those. Letters all ran together in my ears, and I could not put make heads or tails what you're saying. B
0: R I E R M E R E. I got you. Now. They have a, they have an awesome website that was made in 1993.
1: Oh yes, yes they do. Holy smokes, I this mean, is it, intense. You
0: couldn't you couldn't make a parody of this website, but I'm just telling you, <laughs> good pies. Let me
1: good let pies. me put it to you this way. Not only does it have frames, but they have allowed you to see the frame borders. They're not resizable, it doesn't look like, which is too bad. What do you think but, about that logo at the top? Oh, it's it's good times.
2: <laughs> I'm surprised frames still work in modern browsers. Yeah, it's good. I know. Nice. I know. All right. Well, in conclusion, cheesecake is a pie. And uh, thank you to our sponsors <laughs> this week, Squarespace, Molecule, and Fracture. And we will see you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin. Cause it was accidental, Accidental. oh it was accidental, Accidental. John didn't do any research, Marco and Casey wouldn't let him, cause it was accidental, Accidental. oh it was accidental,
0: Accidental.
2: and you can find the show notes
0: at atp.fm, and if you're into Twitter,
2: you can follow them at C-A-S-E-Y-L. I S S. So that's Casey List. M A R C O. A R M. The anti Marco Arm. Syracuse. It's accidental. Accidental.
1: They didn't mean to. Accidental. Accidental. Tech podcast. So long. All right, Marco. You went on a bit of a tear on Twitter a couple of days ago, and there's many layers to this pie, cake, whatever. Um, But it it appears to me that maybe leasing, which you so strenuously encouraged me to do before I purchased a car, maybe leasing wasn't the right choice for you, my friend. (sighs) So let's start, start, if you don't mind. (laughs) How old is the Tesla that is in your garage right now? Uh, about three months. What, you've had this new car for three months you didn't tell either of us? Did I not? I swear I didn't know this.
2: I thought it would be funny to see how long it lasted before you even asked about it. You told us your lease was going up. And we yeah, but I, never, I couldn't what, remember just, when. Yeah, yeah, my lease was, It was, you know, it still had a while. It was going up, like, next spring. <laughs>
1: Oh, so you so you did this early? Yeah, oh, you I, said, and so I, you,
2: Yeah, so I, I was just holding it back to troll you because I figured it would be really funny to at some point have you mention a car and ask me like you know if I'm renewing my lease and say oh yeah I did it like six <laughs> months ago, um, and I, I would have held out um, except that I had to at least attempt to use the power of Twitter to fix a problem I'm having, which by the way hasn't been fixed, but. Uh, We'll see. It. We'll see if that changes at all. Well, before we get to that,
0: did you just get another red
2: Model S? Like, yeah, it's exactly the same. but is it
0: the newer one?
2: Yes, it's the newer model. Like you know, because mm-hmm. mine mine was like right before the like Series Two autopilot hardware whatever it is. Like because mine was like it's my one was like early twenty sixteen, I think. It's a non ball gag model. You you're off yes. the ball gag. Yes, I now have the little mustache. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, anyway, so I yeah I have like I have what is the currently sold ones. And there was a uh, a story that floated around the the uh, car electric blogs uh, in early September that Tesla, in order to uh, juice their September quarter numbers, was offering people to renew their leases early that were near the end of their lease uh, for models uh, S and uh, X. I keep trying. I keep thinking ten. Um, I, I did. <laughs> I did ask when I was when I was in the sales floor. I asked if anybody ever asked for the Model Ten. And I got a totally blank stare and just a <laughs> flat out no. <laughs> so that joke failed. Anyway, so I, I got this email in September saying, hey, uh, if you want, you can renew your lease now with, you know, and, and there's lots of reasons to do It's Basically, like we still had the full federal tax credit this year, and it was a few weeks before they were going to end the unlimited supercharging for all new vehicles. That seems like a no-brainer. I was going to renew in the spring anyway, and then I'll lock in the tax credit and the supercharging. No-brainer, right?
1: Right. This is on the surface, so far, so good.
2: Yeah, exactly. And because they were running a special, they had actually discounted the price by like three or $4,000. Uh, the only downside is that I had to act quickly, but, you know, I could do that. That's fine. And that I had to only pick with from vehicles that were within local inventory. They, there was not enough time to have them manufacture one, like, totally custom. So they were able to search the region and see what, you know, see what they had. And uh, so, yeah, so I'm like, you know what? It's it's a good deal. It's even discounted. And Tesla never discounts their cars for other reasons. So Like, that was, to have a discount, it was special right there. And to also have all the other all the side benefits for something I was going to do anyway in like, you know, seven or eight months. Like, okay, fine. That's great. So there's been a major change at Tesla since I bought my first one. The Model 3 came out. And this has dramatically changed the company and the way it operates. Uh, first of all, you know, I've been going to this dealership about once or twice a year for, you know, three years. The dealership, when I picked up this car which was in mid-September, was by far more crowded than I've ever seen it. The, the parking lot was packed full. It, like People were double parked across the whole parking lot. It was the first time I'd ever had to wait to talk to somebody when I walked in. And I asked about this. You know, I mentioned it to some of the staff when I was talking to them. And uh, they said at that time they were doing about 50 new car deliveries a day. Wow. They they started like a second location for this dealership, like down the street by a few blocks, where they were shuttling people back and forth to do like the the new car walkthroughs, because because like there wasn't room in the parking lot to do them here. <laughs> like, so like it was it was crazy. It was I've never seen it busier, and and that has continued as far as I know uh, since then, because they're just doing a ridiculous amount of Model Three deliveries every day, uh, mostly Model Threes. I get the new car. And I have some opinions on the new car as well. I'll get to those. Um, actually, yeah, let's do those first, and then I'll get to the lease issue. <laughs> so uh, I'll start with the bad. The you know, so this is the new Model S compared to the you know three-year-old outgoing model. As I mentioned, it is more expensive. It was. Del- I have a defect in it. I actually had two. One was a pretty big rattle behind the uh, rear view center mirror, which they fixed by shoving some felt in the in the windshield. Um, the other is that uh, the main center screen has this like brownish orange ring around the perimeter and it was there since day one and i emailed the salesperson right when i got home like hey uh is this normal can i get this fixed please never heard a response i went in to get my snow tires put on uh, about a month ago and i asked them and they're like oh yep it's the yellow ring of death or something like yeah this happens all the time with recent s deliveries um it's just it's a defect we have to replace the screen we'll order the part and we'll call you of course they never did uh, it, the software in general on it, not and not. I'm not. I'm not talking about like the the V9 software that just came out, which I hate. Um, but the, this the like just the the basic operations of the software are buggier than my last car. Like when I get in, you I almost always see like the push break when this message clears message, which is like I'm not ready yet. It's it's almost like when Siri says t- I'll tap you when I'm ready. Like it's like that. It's like it's like you get in your car. You used to be able to just go and you can't do that anymore you, it, there's like a few seconds delay about every like fourth or fifth time now oh and when i asked when i asked the service person about that their their entire explanation for this was well these new ones run on intel uh, systems it's a different platform and the old the old ones ran on like i think like an nvidia thing what? the new ones run on an intel platform so some things are still wonky i'm like uh huh okay thanks um, the uh, there's a little bit less space in the trunk than before because there's this giant box like on the right side by like behind the wheel that wasn't there before in the old model i have yet to find what that box is for i tried doing some research if anybody knows why that giant box is is like now taking up trunk space in the new model s that wasn't there in the old but i'd, I'd love to know just what it is um so there's a little bit less trunk space but not not to a degree that would matter too much Anyway, um some things that are neutral or kind of work out in the wash. Um the new one has the air suspension. My old one did not because uh, I wanted to I wanted more road feel. The air suspension is noticeably more disconnected from the road, noticeably more cushy. It feels like a more luxurious ride but a less a car enthusiast ride. But I actually do like it a lot because it has the cool feature where you can raise and lower the air suspension like from the car while driving. And so there is a few areas that I used to bottom out all the time, like there is you know, certain speed bumps that I that I know are in certain spots, or like certain roads that I like bottom out at the bottom of. Where I just set on those roads now, I like I set the location to say, all right, always raise the suspension in this in this location, and that that has prevented me from bottoming out in those places where I bottomed out every time before. So that was really nice, actually. Like it, I, I think, even though it's a very different driving feel, uh, I like the convenience of it. So maybe I am just getting old and soft. Um, there is still. No good place to put sunglasses anywhere in this car. Uh, I tried a visor clip, but it like hangs down too far into my view. And finally, the uh, the bad parts of the software that I complained about in the last car, like the lack of CarPlay, the weird limited Bluetooth stack, those are all exactly the same. Those have not changed at all. So now, the good. The touchscreen is way, way faster. It, it is still not as responsive as like an iPad would be, like you know if you expect a touch screen to be like an apple touch screen like you'll be disappointed in this one but it's a big it's a big improvement over what it was uh, before the new center console which i didn't have before i had like a weird aftermarket one center console is really nice actually um it's nice to finally get more cup holders that are not the awkward like elbow poking ones in the armrest and that it's cool to have like the configurable cup holder thing in the middle it allowed me to very easily route a usb cable like through the console, they have these like dedicated channels you can route cables through, which is really nice. And I routed up to my phone dock so I can run Waze. And it's just it's like the fact that that this like built in OEM center console was designed for me to run a third party cable through is, is pretty awesome. Uh, rear cup holders now rear usb ports these are all very very nice these are things like you know almost three years with the old car i really wanted those at, no, at many points and now we have them uh, the backup camera is way way higher resolution way nicer way more contrast so it's just better better overall the headlights they got redesigned they're now noticeably brighter um, the whole car looks like like the general design of it just kind of looks like a little bit nicer and like sharper pointier more angular at some points there's a few regressions but there's more improvements than regressions. It's mostly the same as what I had before, but improved. So it's, it's like, you know, if what I had before was like the, the 2.0, this feels like the 2.5 release. Like it's not a totally different car, but it's, it's improved. So just as I was very, very happy with the old one so far, I've been very happy with this one. And if I can ever buy a Tesla again, I will probably keep buying them. But <laughs> let me tell you some issues that have come up besides the defective screen. And the rattle. The main problem is that this all began with them saying, you can end your lease early. We will waive all the remaining payments if you get into a new car now. And that was in mid-September. They didn't cancel the old lease. Are you kidding? I'm not. I wish I was. Oh, my God. They didn't cancel it. I noticed this about a month later when I saw that I was being billed for it, like auto-debited for my account. I'm like, wait a minute. I don't think I was supposed to pay that. And also, I shouldn't have gotten some paperwork in the mail by now about having turned in the car. <laughs> so I looked into it and uh, the, the lease, which is run by a different company, you know, it's, it's serviced by, this, by US Bank, uh, so like not Tesla. And I, so I called them, I'm like, hey, uh, what's up with this? And they're like, oh, Tesla hasn't told us you ended your lease. We have no record of your vehicle even being turned in.
1: I was like, hmm, cool.
2: That's interesting. When I, I, again, I turned the car in mid September, paid the October payment, paid the November payment they did after i've i've been calling them basically about once a week since about mid-October trying to straighten this out calling tesla calling us bank it's been hell it, they they keep not straightening it out uh they finally agreed like i had to send proof to us bank that i had turned the car and like i sent them the odometer statement and everything that like you get when you turn on a lease it's like look this look when this is dated like obviously whenever i call the tesla dealership to try to get them to do something that they have to do because apparently my delivery center, which is the dealership, they have to do a bunch of stuff in this process. Literally, you call them up and you push like, you know, whatever number it is for new delivery department. The phone rings like five or six times and you get a voicemail that's like HPN 053 dash new delivery center is unavailable. It's like, it isn't even a real voicemail greeting. (laughs) It's like the default voicemail greeting for their phone system. And no one ever picks up or returns calls. I have called this dealership probably 15 times for this issue, trying to talk to the same department. Zero returned calls. Zero times they've picked up the phone. Even if I call, I'll call like a different department, like sales. You know, they're always going to pick up. (laughs) And for some reason, the people in, in the new vehicle department are never around. They're always on the phone or out on a test drive. And so they always take messages. Zero calls back in, you know, two months or whatever it's been. It's crazy. Like so, like the dealership is useless. The company is useless. The national numbers are useless. U.S. Bank at least gives me info. <laughs> you know, they're they're barely involved here. But like they're so basically, uh, I dropped off the car in mid-September. U.S. Bank finally got the notification from Tesla that the vehicle was turned in two months later in mid-November. And the other day, I got my final bill from U.S. Bank. My final statement where they have billed me for uh about eight thousand dollars uh because they are billing me for all the remaining payments as if i just terminated the lease early and just just gave the car in and didn't didn't get approval for this or anything so that's when i went to twitter i'm like you know what i'm done i've been trying to do this the right way for two months or whatever and I've been getting nowhere. I've been getting absolutely nowhere. Every time I talk to somebody from Tesla, if I ever do, like, not locally, of course, it's always national. Every time, it's like, oh wow, I'm so sorry. I can't believe this happened. I'm going to get this fixed for you right away. Then I try to get it, fi- and and you know, then nothing happens, right? And every time, oh, we'll call you back in the next 48 hours. We're going to really get this fixed. we we'll, will I'll put this in today. Every time, nothing. It, the The way that company is being run, even. <laughs> The, the guy who made the initial offer to me, like who emailed me with like the the early lease termination offer, the people in like the national headquarters couldn't find him for like two months. Oh, neat. I just, I finally got in touch with him like yesterday for the first time since this all started. He was just like, they were like, oh, he hasn't been to work in a while. That's weird. I'm like, okay, can anybody else help me? Like, oh, well, I'll just leave him a message. Just, oh my God. it's like, <laughs> it's, like I'm telling you, i don't i I've leased a lot of cars now, and granted this was this is the first time i've I've done something out of the regular routine for the lease where like the car company had to coordinate something extra with the bank, and the car company here can't be trusted to do anything like when i when I tweeted about this yesterday, I got so many responses from people saying very similar things that that including a handful of people who also got the same early renewal offer in September, did the same thing and had the same problem. And I haven't heard from anybody yet who said they got paid. So right now, Tesla owes me over $8,000 in payments that I've had to make to us bank that I wasn't supposed to have to make, you know, I'm paying us banks. I'm like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to not pay a bank. Like that's going to mess up my credit if I, if I mess with that. So like I'll pay the bank and then I'll get the money out of Tesla somehow. But the fact is, like, this is putting a severe damper on my appreciation for this company because I still love their car. I really love this car. But it's real hard for me to get past this when they are jerking me around for over $8,000 because of their own incompetence at doing very basic things. I honestly... For freaking fire Elon Musk. I am tired of the way he runs this company. I, I, looking at this company looking at the way it's run, looking at all the problems they've had with operations and things, he should not be in charge of something this big. And it's a shame that the product is so good and that he is such a horrendously awful manager of anything. Because if this company had an adult running it, I, first of all, I think it's time for that. Like you can have like the crazy founder early on at the beginning and they can make some really visionary stuff and it's cool. I think that time for Tesla is behind them where that was really necessary. Now they need an adult to run the show and Elon Musk is not that at all. Their operations are such a mess. They're burning customer loyalty left and right. Look at my responses, you'll see. They might lose me over this, like and I really love them and I don't know what else I would drive. But I am I'm just so mad at at how they have handled this. And when I started hearing that I wasn't the only one, it's it makes it even worse. Bottom line is I have an amazing car, but the company has basically stolen $8,000 from me based on their own stupid incompetence. And that's really hard to get past.
1: That is intense.
0: I'd be more uh, concerned about the two defects
2: of your brand new car off the lot. That doesn't sound good. But, it, well, first of all, A, it's a lease. <laughs> so i know that like long term this won't be my problem even if they never fix it it annoys me i i want i demand that Uh, they fix it no i
0: don't think they're going to be long-term problems it's just that like a brand new car shouldn't have those like (laughs) you can look at the screen in the factory and say oh ugly yellow ring especially if it's a known issue like
2: don't sell that one to customers then right like this is this is how much of a mess they are the fact that like the main interface to the car has a giant visual defect that i spotted when i was in the lot before even driving it off the lot and it like it's clearly like okay that's a defect but you know they delivered it anyway like it's they're a mess the as far as i'm concerned their their big quarterly numbers that they got by boosting the sales like this are illegitimate fraud because they didn't do it in a proper way like to me it's almost like they cheated on their numbers because like if if they cut all these corners to hit these numbers they are defrauding investors into thinking they can sustain this and they absolutely can't and they're defrauding their customers into thinking they're getting proper new cars
0: yeah well uh, if you're you know you've got this for another three year lease, right uh in in other electric car news i know you don't like suvs but it's kind of hilarious to me that how the the suvs you know they're they're so dominant and you know Non-car cars are so dominant in America. Mostly trucks, yes, but uh, but in second place is the SUV, SUV type things. It's like take a typical SUV shape and just keep squishing it like a giant is stepping on it to the point where it's like, it's not a wagon yet, but can we just squish that even more? And it's like, anyway, uh, the Jaguar iPace and the uh, Audi e-tron both are squished SUVs that are not wagons but are also not cars. But I, I, for, I don't know if I could buy something called an e-tron. i know the names are the names are not great um (laughs) but but both of them are getting reasonably good reviews as probably less space than a model s probably a little bit slower but also both cheaper uh, and from actual real competent car companies that have only the usual complement of annoying dealer issues and not these extra super special can never get them to return a call and forget to cancel your lease problems
2: yeah like i i feel like i (sighs) looking at the rest of the market I still don't see anything else that I would want instead of a Model S. I love the Model S so much, but I really have concerns about having a complex financial arrangement with Tesla. Like because like you know, a lease is something they have to administer, they have to do their part, the dealers have to do their part. And you know like I'm here I'm hearing stories all over the place from people on Twitter in response to my stuff saying how like that that like the dealers messed up their registration paperwork and they can't get their car registered properly or they registered it as a motorcycle like it the crazy stuff like basic competence issues because the company is just such a mess the way it's run they can't do the basics at all. And so you know that's that's very concerning uh, like when you have when you have a situation like a lease where you need the dealer to be, to report to the bank when the car is turned even if it's turned in on time you still need the dealer to report to the bank that it's been turned in and then the bank sends you you know the final statement or whatever like they do they put it they bring it somewhere they do an inspection they send you a statement like i shouldn't need to pester somebody for two months that's still charging me money and then have to seek that money afterwards like it, like it's crazy the way they run this company and so i if i want to lease again after this first of all I'm never trusting a damn thing they tell me about any kind of early deal, anything never again. But at this point I doubt even whether I would trust them to handle a regular lease because again, you still need you still need them to report things like that's been turned in. I don't think I would lease from them again. You know, after this one ends, like unless this one ends perfectly, which even that I, I now have severe doubts about. I don't think I would lease from them again because I don't trust them to do basic operations. And so I think I would only get another Tesla if I was going to, like, buy it outright. But I don't, I don't like the idea of buying it outright for all the other reasons that I've been saying that I like leasing. And I've leased with everyone else, and it's been fine. So I know, like, leasing isn't the problem here. Tesla leasing is the problem. And so I think anything you can do to, if, if you're buying a Tesla, if you, if you want a Tesla, anything you can do to make that arrangement really simple on them, is beneficial, but a lease is not that. A lease involves maintenance and service, and and them doing you know their part on their end. And so, I would be very very hesitant to lease from them again. And ultimately, that might cost them my business because I really like leasing my cars. So I'm gonna really I'm gonna have to grapple with that in you know three years when when the decision time comes. But for now, I love their cars, but their company is just a wreck it is embarrassing it is destructive and it is stealing my money i i at this point i'm wondering about like you know with all the horror
0: stories of the manufacturing mostly of the model three and everything but just like i'm wondering that if you get a car from them if some really important bolt is missing from an important suspension member and your car's gonna your wheels are gonna fall off like uh casey's saturn like yeah it, i'm worried it, it could, like Like, basic, uh, just basic competence in assembling cars, because everything is just sort of slapdash, get it done, get it done. And that's not... I don't want people in a hurry to assemble my car. I don't want that at all, especially my super expensive car. I want some persnickety German to sign his name to my engine block like they do on the M series or whatever, and, you know... And granted, the engine's probably still going to blow up, but I have some some, uh, faith that every bolt that is supposed to be in the car is in the car, and like spray paint didn't get over on some area that's not supposed to because it was spray painted outdoors on top of blocks in the wind or whatever like, <laughs> you know whatever was causing the 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 rattle in your dashboard that they jammed some felt down under like this is not reassuring in terms of you know the advantage is that these cars are so much simpler in terms of exactly how many parts they have than an internal combustion car but then that's why i'm thinking about not you know thinking about not the battery or stuff like that but like suspension members and things like that or i, I think about was it mkbhd when he got his p100d it was like taking it around turns and all of a sudden the power steering would cut off and he like couldn't turn the wheel anymore. Like that's a safety issue. Like it's, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little bit worried about that. Um, and and like I said, the, uh, because nobody buys cars anymore, like it used to be like, Oh, we're all losing our manual transmissions. Right. And we were like sad about that. We should start getting pre-sad about the fact that no one buys cars anymore. I mean, Casey's already fine. He's got his little non-car thing over there, but you and I are still buying cars. Uh, and they don't don't really make them anymore. That's why all the new electrics that I keep telling you about are squished SUVs and not cars. I'm assuming in three years maybe you'll have some actual car options, or maybe the SUVs will be so squished that they're basically just weird wagon things. Uh, but I do like the fact that most of the reviews they're getting is like competency wise in terms of hey, it feels like a nice car and it's got Tesla type range and the you know the performance is good and it's smooth and you know you don't you're not really you know especially since they're made. With less zazz than the Tesla, maybe this is a downside for you. But they, it looks like a nice Audi interior, right? Uh, and but it just happens to be electric, right? So uh, hopefully, in three years, you will have more options to shop around for. At the very least, you should test drive these
2: just to see how the other half is living. Yeah, I guess uh, you don't have to worry about that for three years. I I, like I, I don't, I don't want like some Audi, you know, e-tron. Like that's yeah, that's oh. a bad name. I don't, it's a bad name. It's it's an uh, I find it unattractive. Like. I just want the car I already have mm-hmm. to be like reasonably to, ha- to have the company behind it be like, have their basic stuff together, like to be able to buy it easily, to be able to turn it in easily, to be able to get it serviced easily and to not have, you know, issues that never get resolved because no one can possibly reach the department that, resolves them like god forbid something breaks on that thing and you have to deal
0: with repairs during the three-year lease thing just getting getting it repaired getting the parts you know dealing with that
2: whole and i've i've heard actually like i've been lucky that like in, in my first one like the repairs were fair like i had to, I had to get the door handles replaced once because like it wouldn't it wouldn't pop out um and it was fairly straightforward and it didn't take long but like i've heard I've heard stories from people who have S's and, and that like the services take forever, like that they, they're waiting for parts for months that like their, their car literally just can't be fixed for months. And you know, it's, I've heard, I've heard it's very, very bad. Um, say this is just, I I can't uh, like right now I'm, I'm, I'm putting up with some of this BS, not all of it. I'm, I'm very much not putting up with the money part of it, but like some of the stuff like, like the, the, the yellow ring screen, like, I'll put up with this temporarily because i love I love the rest of the car so much, but like they're just setting customers on fire here like i I do not foresee positive things for their future if they don't replace Elon musk like now he he literally he needs to go like he needs to go yesterday he he cannot run this company the way he's running it and have it be sustainable at all
1: it's It's interesting to me because I feel like. For a long time, uh, this is going to sound more angsty than I mean it. For a long time, you've been tolerating foibles with the with the Model S. You know, things like, I, I don't think you've been as grumpy about a lack of car, car play as a lot of other Tesla owners have been, but that's an example. No, it doesn't affect um, me that much. But there's ways, I think, that you've been kind of putting up with the Model S. And now, I feel like, from my point of view, you are using or, or you 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 own this car despite yourself like despite the fact that you really don't want to own this car you own this car and i know that's probably not the case because you just told me how much you love it but man this is getting to the point where it's like i i don't think i'd recommend it for you anymore
2: so i think i'm incredibly happy with the way the car works and drives and how it feels how it looks what it can hold how practical it is as a family car I'm very happy with all those things, but I don't need, you know, imminent service right this second. And, you know, if like, if, if we can work out the least thing, like if, if Tesla sends me a check for $8,500, uh, $85 tomorrow, then this problem mostly goes away. I'll deal with the yellow ring on the screen until they can fix it sometime next year. Probably, you know, that's fine. It's not, that, it isn't a big deal. If I, if this car were, i was gonna say something something that i that i like a a uh thought exercise that i often use with how happy i am with a car is if my car was stolen tomorrow what would i replace it with and i was i was about to say that there but then i was like oh crap imagine how long it would take tesla's like leasing office <laughs> you'd have to keep paying that lease yeah they, oh, they, they would never straighten that out <laughs> oh god it would be a mess never mind we don't
0: have any record of you turning
2: the car in sir like no it was stolen well
0: we can't cancel your lease unless your car has been turned in system won't let us do it
2: (laughs) even then you can't cancel it (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh yeah so but anyway if (laughs) my the, the way i used to judge how happy i was was like would i get the same car again if it just disappeared and i had to make that same choice like tomorrow and right now The answer would be yes. I would get the Model S again. I love the Model S. I absolutely love it. There's a reason why I renewed the lease. Because it's awesome. I love it. I said, yes, I want this car for another three years. It's the first time I've done that since I've owned cars. Oh, you did it with Tiff's car because you couldn't decide. That wasn't my car. That was Tiff's car. Yeah, just saying. By the way, her next car, which is due next year, not going to be a Tesla. i3 is ugly. Don't do it. Don't do it. We are thinking about the i3.